Oh, my God. 
After 6 a.m., good morning, everybody. My name is Nahum Siegel. Welcome to a Monday. Back to work we go. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. It's the final week of our three weeks and nine days format. Specifically, the lectures of Rabbi Beryl Wine carrying us through this week as we get to Tisha B'Av, which is on Thursday. And then, of course, back to our regular format, Erev Shabbos Nachamu, this coming Friday morning, and we are certainly anticipating that, plus a whole bunch of great stuff going on next week and a whole bunch of great stuff during going on during the month of August. It is all happening here at JM and the AM and the Nahum Siegel Network. Rabbi Beryl Wine has a, um, a wonderful series entitled Jewish Societies in Retrospect. Jewish Societies in Retrospect. This lecture is entitled Jews in the Ottoman Empire and Palestine. Jews in the Ottoman Empire and and Palestine. Rabbi Beryl Wine at JM in the AM. And in just a moment, I'm sorry about that, in just a moment we will get Rabbi Wine's lecture on the air. <laughs> One critical step I I missed in our presentation. And I apologize for that. And here we go. Rabbi Beryl Wine, Ottoman Empire, Palestine, JM in the AM. turns itself uh, with the Jews in Ottoman Palestine before uh, England took over after the First World War. The Ottoman Empire uh, existed for uh, 500 years. When an empire exists for 500 years, and let's say you're living in year 300 of the 500, so you're convinced that it'll be there forever because it was there 300 years before you. There's no reason to think it won't keep on going after you. But history shows that uh, no empire exists forever. No country's dominance over others exists forever. And that uh, the uh, rise and descent of empires is really the story of history. The Ottoman Empire was founded by a, uh, someone from the Caucasus, a Turk, by the name of Osman in the uh, 13th century. The Europeans changed Osman to Ottoman. I guess they spoke Svardit. <laughs> and that's why it's called the Ottoman Empire. And uh, the goal of the Ottoman Empire was to destroy the Byzantine Empire. The Byzantine Empire was the Christian Empire. It was the eastern part of the previous Roman Empire. It had existed from the time of uh, Constantine the Great 
in about 320 uh, for almost a thousand years. Its capital was Constantinople. And in Constantinople, there was a great church called the Church of St. Sophia, built by Constantine. And it was the center of Eastern Christianity, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, the Slavic or, uh, Orthodox religions, in contradistinction to the Roman Catholics. And uh, it was a very powerful empire, and it ruled over Palestine. And it was terribly anti-Jewish. Uh, to the extent that uh, the Jewish community in Palestine evaporated under its rule. Uh, when the Ramban came here in 1267, he could not find the 10 Jews in Jerusalem. And the Byzantines had uh, benefited from the Crusades. The Crusades had turned the mosques on the Temple Mount into churches. Uh, but the uh, Ottomans, who were Muslims, but not Arabs, were determined to crush the Byzantine Empire and restore the entire Middle East to Muslim control. And they were fierce and they were warlike and they waged war constantly for 100, 150 years against the Byzantines. And finally, they conquered the Byzantines. And they took over Constantinople, renamed it Istanbul, and pushed into Europe. Uh, they uh, conquered all of the Balkans, including the city of Belgrade. They conquered Greece, large parts of Hungary, up to the Romanian border. And, uh, and they were at the gates of Vienna. There the uh, Pope rallied the Christian powers in Europe to stop them. And that was like the high point, the zenith of the Ottoman Empire. And from then on, which were the middle of the 16th century on, the Ottoman Empire began a slow but steady decline. Now the ruler of the Ottoman Empire, they had different rulers. Some of them are very well known to us. For instance, Suleiman the Magnificent. He was a very modest person. But he built the walls of Jerusalem, the walls that exist today. He built them on the uh, foundation of uh, many of the walls that Herod had built at the time of the temple. But he built them now in medieval style as you can see with the slits for the archers to shoot through, the turrets, and the walkways on top of the walls. And he made Jerusalem in his day impregnable. 
because there was no way to destroy those walls. He also, uh, they took back the churches and converted them back into mosques. The Al-Aqsa Mosque, then the Mosque of the Golden Dome, the Mosque of Omar. Now, uh, there were many Jews under Ottoman rule, and uh, the Ottomans were uh, not friendly to the Jews. They had many decrees against the Jews. You couldn't walk on the same sidewalk as a Muslim. You had to wear uh, shoes of two different colors. All sorts of shameful things. But uh, in relative comparison to the treatment of the Jews in Christian Europe, they were very benign. And they had a concept called dhimmi. D-H-I-M-M-I. The Dhimmi concept was that aside from the Muslims, the Koran, which is the true faith, according to them, there are what they call people of the book, which is a phrase that Muhammad used. Jews use it to name themselves, but it's re- the origin is really... Muslim, not Jewish. The people of the book that believed in the Bible, so they believed in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel. They also believed that there was a person called Yishmael. Uh, they were the people of the book. And the book was the basis for the Muslim religion in many respects. And therefore, the people of the book were not considered to be infidels per se, which the Christians were, but they were considered to be dhimmis. Dhimmis mean second or third class citizens who have a right to live in the country but under Muslim rule and under the decrees and laws of the Muslim rulers. But they are not to be expelled. And uh, basically speaking, uh, for a thousand years, the Jews in this part of the world uh, did not know what a pogrom was. Whereas in Europe, it was an everyday occurrence. The uh, relationship of the Ottoman Empire to the Jews, therefore, was mixed. Uh, In order to be an officer or to have a high position in the court of the Sultan, one had to convert to Islam. But many Jews... Uh, converted only pro forma on the outside and they remained Jews on the inside and they held high positions and uh, the Muslims winked at it Uh, they were aware that the Jewish converts were uh, mostly insincere 
but uh, they put up with it because they needed them. The Jews knew languages, the Jews had relatives in Christian countries, the Jews could uh, do trade with Christian countries. And uh, therefore, uh, the Jews were, uh, if not welcome, they were certainly not objected to. After the uh, expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492, large numbers of Sephardic Jews, Spanish Jews, came to live under the Ottomans. And there were great Jewish communities in Syria, in Aleppo and in Damascus. There were great Jewish communities in Egypt, in Old Cairo, Fostat, and in Alexandria. But there was almost no Jewish settlement in the land of Israel per se. There were a lot of Jews that lived in Turkey, in Adrianople, in Constantinople, in Istanbul, in Beirut, but not here. In the uh, 16th century, you first got Jewish settlement in the land of Israel, especially in Svat and in the Galil and a small Jewish settlement here in Jerusalem. Now, uh, after every tragedy, a major tragedy in the Jewish world, uh, there is a revival of the Messianic spirit. Because uh, according to Talmudic sources, the uh, Messianic era is always preceded by a uh, time of troubles time of pain and travail. It's compared to childbirth. And uh, the uh, Jews who settled here in the land of Israel uh, had uh, a messianic fervor. So there was an attempt to renew the Sanhedrin because according to Maimonides, the uh, renewal of uh, a Jewish court system has to precede the Messianic era. So there was a determined effort to renew the Sanhedrin. Now you couldn't renew the Sanhedrin because the ordination for the Sanhedrin, the smicha, had expired for over uh, a millennia, a millennium. And only somebody who had the smicha could give the smicha. So how could you renew the Sanhedrin? So for that, again, Maimonides came to the rescue. And uh, he posited that if the rabbis living in the land of Israel gathered together and decided that one of them was worthy of the smicha, then they could grant him the smicha, and then he in turn would grant the smicha to others. This happened in the 1540s. Rabbi Yaakov Beirav received the smicha, 
and he gave smicha to others, including Rabbi Yosef Karo, the author of the Shulchan Aruch. But he was opposed by other rabbis in the country, especially the rabbi in Jerusalem. And uh, eventually it became clear that you could not have a Sanhedrin that half the rabbis agreed to and half the rabbis didn't agree to. It would only defeat the purpose. So the idea died. Perhaps that was the idea that inspired Rabbi Yosef Karo to write the Shulchan Aruch. Because if you couldn't have a live Sanhedrin, you could have a book that was the Sanhedrin that decided, so to speak, all matters of Jewish law that were then on the table. In any event, the messianic fervor uh, burst through completely in the Ottoman Empire a hundred years later, when Shapsai Tzvi uh, proclaimed himself to be the Messiah. Shapsai Tzvi lived, originally he was from Egypt, he lived in uh, the land of Israel, uh, his uh, assistant and publicist was uh, Noson Oazosi, Nathan of Gaza, and uh, he established himself as the Jewish Messiah, and uh, approximately a third of the Jewish people believed in him including many great rabbis. And he held court as though he were the Messiah. People traveled from all over the world to see him. Naturally, there was a fee. No Messiah comes cheap. <laughs> and it, uh, it was the talk of Europe, not only Jewish Europe, but the non-Jewish Europe as well. It's mentioned in all the diplomatic uh, messages of the ambassadors of the time that somehow the Jews have a Messiah in the land of Israel. The Sultan uh, tired of the game and he arrested Shabzai Tzvi and he put him in house arrest in Turkey. But uh, Nathan said, uh, this is only a test for the faithful to see if you really believe in him. And only those who really believe in him will be privileged to witness the redemption. And therefore, uh, he uh, continued to be the Messiah. People still came to see him in, their, in where he was under house arrest. Eventually, the sultan tired of that as well, and he told Shabzai Tzvi, either you publicly uh, convert to Islam, or I will behead you. So he publicly converted to Islam. And he became a courtier in the sultan's court. And needless to say, that deflated the Jewish world completely, and it has effect until today.
So the Jews remained throughout the 1600s, 1700s in these circumstances under Ottoman rule with a very, very limited population in the land of Israel. Beginning in the middle of the 1700s, for some reason, because there's no logic to this, and no logic to anything in Jewish history, Jews started to come to the land of Israel. European Jews, Ashkenazic Jews mainly, but Sephardic Jews as well. They came mainly to observe the commandments that exist here in the land of Israel and to be buried here because according to Jewish tradition, being buried in Israel is a uh, kapora, it's a uh, forgiveness for sins. So Jews came. They didn't come in big numbers, but they came. So for the first time, the Ottoman Empire is faced, since the uh, expulsion of Jews from Spain, so uh, 200 years later, all of a sudden, there's a trickle of Jews that are coming to live in the country. Now, you didn't need a passport then. You didn't need a visa. The borders were open. Whoever wanted to come could come. The country itself was completely desolate. Had no economy, had no natural resources, had a very small population. The city of Jerusalem probably had a thousand people. And uh, the uh, main other cities, Svat, Tiberias, Hebron, were equally as small. And they were not Jewish. The population there was Arab. And much of it was Bedouin Arab, meaning they were nomads. They didn't uh, settle anywhere. And it was a backwater of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, there were places where the Ottoman Empire could collect taxes. Egypt, Syria, because Iraq, because those were places that had an economy. But here where there was no economy, there was no one to collect taxes from. The system of the Ottoman Empire was decentralized rule. In other words, the Sultan was in his palace in Istanbul and he appointed somebody to run Syria and he appointed somebody to run Iraq and somebody to run Egypt, and he appointed somebody to run Palestine. Now, Palestine was not seen as a good appointment because you couldn't make money on it. There was no way to uh, really become wealthy as the rulers of the other provinces of the Ottoman Empire were able to become wealthy. And therefore, uh, the rulers of Palestine appointed by the Ottomans 
were, uh, had three qualities to them. They were ignorant, they were cruel, and they were greedy. And uh, that only made the situation in the country worse. Uh, it was corrupt from beginning to end. And it is into this society that Jews started to come, that they began to move to the country. So in the 1700s, Gershon Kitiver, who was the brother-in-law to Baal Shem Tov, came. Uh, other Hasidim came. In the early 1800s, the students of, and disciples of the Gaon of Vilna came. Uh, other Chabad came. European Jews, Eastern European Ashkenazic Jews came. Now the, the Arabs had only known Smartic Jews. So it's an interesting thing. The Arabs called any foreigner a Frank, which was the name of a French knight who in the Crusades, they were Franks. So the Arabs called the Sephardic Jews Franks, even though they had nothing to do with France. When the Ashkenazim came, so they took the Arab uh, statement that the Sephardim were Franks. And that's the origin of the fact that until today, many sections of the Ashkenazic world call the Sephardim Franks. Now, the, the uh, Sultan had allowed the Jews a certain amount of religious autonomy. For instance, Jews were entitled to have their own courts. The chief rabbi, so to speak, of any given country was called the Chacham Bashi. Chacham Bashi meant that he was the Chacham, which is the name, the Sephardic name for a rabbi. And Bashi meant that he was appointed by the Turks and that he had official status. So there was a Chacham Bashi here in the land of Israel who was official. The Ashkenazim came here. They didn't recognize the Chacham Bashi. They did not agree to the Sephardic customs. They wanted to have their own shechita, their own meat. They wanted to impose their own customs. They dressed differently. All of which caused uh, great internal strife in the small Jewish community that existed here in the 1800s. And uh, a lot of what goes on today between, let's say, uh, Shas and the uh, other religious parties is a carryover from the internal divisions that occurred in the 1800s, the Ashkenazim petitioned to have their own shrita, and since it was all corrupt, so it was only a question of paying off. And so they eventually were able to do so. To further complicate the matter, 
In the 1800s, all of the major powers in Europe were jockeying for position to take over the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire was weak, was corrupt, was called the sick man of Europe. So Russia wanted a peace. Russia wanted the, the uh, Bosporus and the Dardanelles to give it access to the Mediterranean. And that's what the Crimean War was fought in the 1860s, 1850s rather, to prevent Russia. So France and England supported Turkey against Russia to prevent Russia from reaching the Mediterranean. Uh, France wanted, uh, Napoleon had already uh, conquered parts of the Middle East in his campaigns in the early 1800s. Napoleon uh, came here to the land of Israel. He besieged the city of Acre, which Akko, uh, near Haifa, but he could not conquer it. But he had uh, rule over Egypt. Uh, England was always interested in asserting itself in its imperialist days for control of the Middle East. And so slowly the Ottoman Empire was receding. Uh, Greece broke off and became an independent country. It was a great cause of England, Lord Byron and others, who supported Greek independence. And then uh, parts of the Balkans broke off. The Slavs broke away. Serbia became a country. And the Austrian Empire, the Habsburgs, uh, threw them out of Hungary. And then they took over uh, Kosovo and Bosnia and Herzegovina. So it looked like whatever you wanted to take from Turkey, you could take. The Ottoman Empire was, uh, for all purposes, uh, a dead man walking. And now the Jews came into the country, small in number, but they were coming. There were uh, uh, 25, 30,000 Jews in the country already. And uh, we all know that uh, 25, 30,000 Jews make noise like 130,000. And since there never were any accurate numbers or population figures, etc., it posed a problem to the Ottoman Empire. Because it's all right to have dhimmis, but these people, first of all, they didn't speak Arabic and they didn't want to speak Arabic. They didn't speak Turkish. They had no intention of assimilating into the general population. They had no respect for the Turkish government. So what are you supposed to do with them? But the Jews were uh, fortunate, uh, if we could use that word, 
because of the fact that all of the European powers created consulates, footholds here in the land of Israel and especially in Jerusalem. So there was an English consulate and the Anglican church sent missionaries to the country and built schools in the country. The French had a consulate. The French sent also missionaries. Not only missionaries, they sent Jewish organizations, the famous Alliance that made schools and taught French culture and French language throughout the Middle East and here in Palestine and Jerusalem as well. So these things whittled away at the Ottoman Empire. There was the Russian compound, which exists until today, that Putin wants it back, and we're stupid enough to talk to him about it. So the Russians, even though in, in Russia Jews were persecuted unmercifully, here the Russians said, well, they are Russian subjects of the Tsar, and our job is to protect them from the Turks, to protect them from the Ottomans. And therefore, and then there was the famous Austrian consulate, which was the biggest, the Habsburgs, who uh, also had great pretensions here. And in the late 1800s, the Germans entered here. The Kaiser came. Now, there had been an organization called the Templar Knights during the Crusades. The Templar Knights were German, German Christians. They were called Templar because they fought for the temple. And they had established themselves on the island of Rhodes. And uh, the Kaiser... Uh, revived and refreshed the idea of Templar Knights. And the Kaiser encouraged German immigration to Palestine. The idea of red roofs, which you see throughout the country, that was brought by the Kaiser, by the Templar Knights. They were the first ones to make these red terracotta roofs. And the Kaiser thought that he was going to rule Palestine. It was part of the grand scheme of Germany's place in the sun. In fact, there was a very large German population here, the German colony, that existed until World War II. In World War II, England uh, rounded them all up and uh, exiled them because they were enemy aliens. But uh, the state of Israel has paid compensation uh, to all the Germans that own property here uh, before the Second World War. So uh, it's a... Uh, an amalgamation of all sorts of different forces here. Now, let's throw into the mix Zionism. Beginning uh, pre-Zionism begins in the 1870s when the organization of the Lovers of Zion 
existed in Eastern Europe, the Chovev Then there were the Biluim, that was a small group of people that immigrated, that came to work the land here. And then there was Herzl. Now Herzl's great dream was that he was going to make a Jewish state somewhere in the world, preferably in Palestine, but if not in Palestine, wherever he could. Therefore, he agreed to take Uganda when it was offered. Turkey viewed Zionism as its mortal enemy. The Ottoman Empire viewed it, and correctly so, that if Zionism succeeded, the Ottoman Empire would collapse completely. And therefore, uh, its attitude towards the Jewish community then existing in Palestine began to change for the worse. They no longer wanted to treat them as dimmies. They wanted to treat them as enemies. They felt that the Jews would subvert the Ottoman rule here. Also, by the fact that Jews were coming, some sort of economy was developing. Money was coming from overseas. Jewish money was coming from Eastern Europe on a regular basis. And the Zionist movement uh, created organizations such as the Jewish National Fund and the Karen Ayasod, which was investing money in the country purchasing land and the the Ottoman Empire saw all of this as subverting them destroying their uh, hegemony over the country they wouldn't be able to control it and therefore uh, beginning in 1900 for the 15 uh, 20 years till England took over the country the, the Ottoman Empire instituted a reign of terror here against the Jews. So that the early Jewish settlements, Merchavia and the other ones in the Galil, the Jews who lived in Jaffa, and the Jews who lived here in Jerusalem, lived under terrible conditions of poverty and the Turks stirred up the Arabs with promises of booty and loot and uh, now you had if not pogroms but you had armed attacks on a regular basis there were two responses by the Jews one was to try and negotiate with the Turks to, so to speak, try and prove their loyalty. The other one, which was favored by the Zionists and uh, especially by the new Zionists that were coming here who were not religious, who were basically left-wing idealists, was that they were going to defend themselves that the uh, 
the days of the Jewish people being passive in face of persecution was going to end. And they organized an organization called Hashomer, the Watchmen. And there were groups uh, uh, that fought off the Bedouin Arabs, uh, that made raids on the Arab communities, and that fought the Turks. Now, the Turks had uh, borrowed money from the Rothschilds, as did all of Europe. And they were going to build a railroad together with the British and the French to connect the Suez Canal with uh, the uh, Persian Gulf, an overland railroad. Uh, one branch was going to go down to Saudi Arabia, what is today Saudi Arabia, to Mecca. But the main branch was to go through Syria, over what is present-day Lebanon, down through where Rosh Hanikra is, down the coast of Palestine, into Egypt, into Alexandria, and eventually to link up with the Suez Canal. And the Turks started to build that railroad. And it was the major source of employment and wealth uh, during the uh, last part of the 19th and the early part of the 20th century. The Jews welcomed the railroad because they saw it as a sign of modernization. And the Jews felt that if the Turks somehow could be modernized, uh, they would agree Somehow they would agree that with the Zionist dream. Now, the Zionists never were practical. That's why we have a state. Why should the Turks agree, under any circumstances, that they're going to give away Palestine to the Zionists? But that was the belief, just as the belief was later that England was going to give it to you. In 1904, there was a revolution in Turkey. And a group called the Young Turks came to power. They were nationalists. Uh, they wanted the Sultan and the old ways gone. They wanted to modernize the country. To paraphrase someone, they wanted to make Turkey great again. And uh, they raised an army, they fought wars, some successful, some unsuccessful. But now the power of the Sultan was almost non-existent. One of the young Turks was a man by the name of Kemal Pasha who was a military genius. He would later become the ruler of Turkey and change his name to Ataturk and enforce the modernization of Turkey and to get rid of the religion within Turkey. 
which has been restored now in our time to the detriment of all. In any event, the young Turks were bitterly anti-Zionist. And they were not willing under any circumstance uh, to uh, relax the hold of the Turks on Palestine. And they raised taxes. They sent extra soldiers into the country. And they absolutely persecuted the Jews from 1900 to 1920. Now, uh, Germany had made an alliance with Turkey. It sent the uh, famous German general to train the Turkish army. Uh, Turkey had ordered uh, two battleships that were being built in the British naval yards. Turkey was going to take on the West. So when the First World War broke out in 1914, after it had been two Balkan Wars in 1912 and 1913, at which Turkey was defeated both times, the uh, British took the battleships away from Turkey. But Turkey entered the war on the side of Germany and Austria. Now the Turks, uh, in the middle of the war in 1915, there was a large Christian Armenian population in Turkey. The Turks held that the Christians were subversive and therefore they exiled them deep into the Caucasus. During that exile, the process of the exile, one and a half million Armenians died. It was the first genocide of the 20th century. Turkey has never owned up to it. And it's a sore point always between all the countries that have relations with Turkey. It's a subject that cannot be raised. They didn't do anything. Even though we have movies of what they did do. In any event, uh, Turkey tried to invade Russia. Russia was then with France and England, the Allies. So it tried to invade Russia from the south, and it met disaster. So the Allies thought that Turkey's a pushover. And therefore, Churchill came up with the harebrained scheme that he was going to invade Turkey through the peninsula of Gallipoli. But the problem is Gallipoli was commanded by Kemal Pasha, who was a tremendously skillful general. And the uh, Allies uh, did not possess his equal. 
and Gallipoli turned into an Allied disaster. Such a disaster that Churchill had to resign from the war cabinet. The Turks expelled all of the Zionist leaders from Palestine. The Ben-Gurion was in New York. Of Cook was in Switzerland and then in London. Everybody was somewhere else. Nobody was in the country. And the whole Zionist enterprise, so to speak, teetered because uh, it had no leadership and there was no immigration. And not only that, the Jewish population declined by 25% during the war. And the Jews were starved and there was disease. It was a terrible time. Had uh, Germany and Turkey won the war, you know, that's one of the great ifs, because as late as 1918, it looked like Germany was going to win the war. So what would have happened here? Undoubtedly what would have happened is that all the Jews would have been expelled. Certainly the European Jews. But Turkey did not win the war. And out of the war came the Balfour Declaration and later the British Mandate and the greatest revival of the Zionist movement that they could have ever imagined. Now when England took over, and we still have vestiges of that today, they kept a lot of Turkish law in the country especially regarding real estate. So uh, in this country, you have Israeli law, British law, and Turkish law, and a smattering of Jewish law. And that's why we have the most lawyers per capita of any country in the world. And that's why everything is so complicated here. And the Ottoman Empire collapsed. Out of the Ottoman Empire, Kemal Pasha took over the country. He renamed himself Ataturk, and he created modern Turkey. Greece attempted to invade Turkey and take territory. And uh, Ataturk defeated them, took back all the territory. But out of the Ottoman Empire were carved artificial countries which exist until today. Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Arabia, Yemen. All of these countries were drawn on a map with a pencil. And they're, they're countries. Even though the population is basically Arab and the Arab population is homogeneous and most of the populations do not have much loyalty to the governments, 
that rule them because they see themselves as part of a greater uh, pan-Arab, pan-Muslim world that they belong to. When uh, the uh, Ataturk took over, he banned any public display of religion. All the mosques were closed, all the churches were closed, all the synagogues were closed. Everybody had to go underground. You could not wear the fez or Arab dress in the street. You couldn't wear a kippah. You could recognize Jews in uh, Istanbul by who was wearing a baseball cap. Any public display of any religion was banned. He did to Turkey what the communists did to Russia, to the Soviet Union. Completely eliminated religion. The only thing is, just as in the Soviet Union when the communist regime collapsed, religion came back because it had always been there. So the same thing here we see in our time that the uh, religion, the Muslim, it all has come back and come back in, in, in a strong and even extremist form. There was a Jewish population in Turkey between the 25 to 40,000 Jews. They still live there today. They're very, very low-key. Turkey uh, never joined in the wars against Israel. Uh, it has a, a strange relationship with us. Sometimes good, sometimes different. But out of all of the Muslim countries, it's the country that has, so to speak, the most normal relations with us. I mean, you've got Turkish Airlines that flies here. You have, uh, for a long period of time, uh, there was tremendous Jewish tourism to Turkey. There was Turkish tourism to Israel. The uh, terrorism has diminished that. But uh, it's a uh, process. But the Jews who had to live here in the beginning of the 20th century under Ottoman rule had a very, very terrible, terrible time of it. And that's one of the miracles, so to speak. It's certainly one of the historic events that the uh, Allies won the First World War and not the Central Powers, because otherwise there certainly would not have been a possibility of the state of Israel or Jewish existence here in the Holy Land coming into existence. This JM in the AM Monday morning, a brilliant lecture by Rabbi Beryl Wine from the series entitled Jewish Societies in Retrospect. That was Jews in the Ottoman Empire and Palestine. JM in the AM Monday on this 27th of July to 6th of Menachem Av. Good morning, everybody. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program, heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSingle.com and the NachumSingle Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. 
Got lights on in the background. We'll do our news from Israel coming up. Ellie Beer, United Hatzalah of Israel, a COVID survivor, is going to join us coming up. We'll have their own parrots later on in the big Mizrahi campaign. And plenty more. Abe Foxman on Erev Tishabov this coming Wednesday at JM in the AM. Galitzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Monday is next. We say Boker Tov from JM in the AM. Galitzal, Mirushalayim, Asha Ashtayim, Shalom Rav, Khan Rani Avnai, Ima Shekoreachshav. המשבר בענף התרבות, המשנה למנכ״ל משרד הבריאות, הפרופסור איתמר גרוטו, מתחייב בוועדת הקורונה בכנסת. בימים הקרובים התגבש מתווה בנוגע לענף התרבות. מנכ״לית תיאטרון בית לסין ציפי פיניס אמרה במהלך הדיון, לא ייתכן שלא מתייחסים אלינו, אין סיבה להשאיר אותנו סגורים. כתבתנו אור זוהי סולומוני שמע אותה. האדמה בוערת. עד עכשיו התנהגנו נורא יפה, אפילו לא היינו בהפגנות, אלא רק בודדים. אני לא רוצה להגיד שאנחנו נפתח, אם ייתנו לנו, לא ייתנו לנו. זה מה שיוצא. סוג של מרד. כי לא ייתכן שלא מתייחסים שר המשפטים ניסן קורן יוצא נגד דבריו של השר לביטחון הפנים אוחנה נגד ההפגנות בבלפור. בציוץ בטוויטר כתב ניסן קורן בחוק הקורונה עמדנו על כך שזכות ההפגנה לא תיפגע. כל ניסיון להקם את ההחלטה הזו היא ניסיון להקם את זכויות האזרח. יש לוודא שלא מופעלים אמצעים אסורים, שיטור יתר או קנסות חריגים כלפי מפגינים. במקביל ליושב ראש איגוד רופאי בריאות הציבור בישראל, הפרופסור חגי לוין טען אצל יעל דן בגלי צה"ל אין הוכחה כי יש הדבקות רבות בהפגנות. אין לנו עדות להדבקות המוניות במתאר של הפגנות באוויר הפתוח. אני לא אומר שלא ייתכן שמפגין כזה או אחר נדבק. השאלה האם אנחנו רואים התפרצויות ענק, ודרך אגב, מי שמודאג מהסיכון להדבקה בהפגנות, אז כדאי שהוא יפסיק את השימוש בהתזת מים, כי התזת מים מרטיבה את המסכות ואז פוגעת ביעילות שלהם. המשטרה מנסה לגייס כ-250 שוטרים זמניים על מנת להתגבר על מצוקת כוח האדם והעומס שנוצר עקב הצורך באכיפת הנחיות משרד הבריאות, פרסמה כתבתנו עדה שטייף. גיוס מיועד לכאלה ששירתו בעבר במשמר הגבול ובשירות חובה. המשימה העיקרית של המתגייסים תהיה אכיפת ההנחיות למיגרו הקורונה. הגיוס הינו בעקבות החלטת ממשלה והמשרד לביטחון הפנים. השוטרים ישרתו חצי שנה וייתכן שאז יישקל גיוסם הקבוע בהתאם להחלטת מפקדם. המתיחות בצפון. חבר הקבינט המדיני-ביטחוני, השר יובל שטייניץ, אומר לאמיר איבגי ביומן הצהריים, ואנחנו מעריכים שחיזבאללה לא מעוניין בהתלקחות כוללת מול ישראל. אין לנו עניין בלצאת עכשיו למערכה צבאית בלבנון. אנחנו כרגע מונעים הקמה של חיזבאללה ב' או משהו הרבה יותר חמור בסוריה. אני מניח שחיזבאללה לא רוצה התלקחות כוללת. לבנון אה, בקשיים נוראים, על סף של קריסה כלכלית מוחלטת, אבל בסוף חיזבאללה זה ארגון... אה, שמקבל גם הוראות מאיראן, ואין לדעת מתי האיראנים יורו לחיזבאללה לתקוף. שש מחלקות במוסדות גריאטריים לאשפוז חולי קורונה נסגרו בעקבות בידוד צוות רפואי. פרסם לראשונה כתבנו לענייני בריאות מאיר מרציאנו. המאושפזים הקשישים שחלו בקורונה נשארים בבתי החולים וגורמים לעומס רב על מחלקות הקורונה במקום שיעבירו אותם למוסדות היהודיים. בין היתר חמש מחלקות בנאות המושבה נסגרו, מחלקת המונשמים בבית רבקה. בתוך כך מגן דוד אדום הפסיק לפנות חולים או חשודים בקורונה לבתי החולים בירושלים בעקבות עומס רב במחלקות. והתחזית זה אולי נשמע דמיוני, אבל מחר הכבדה בעומס החום. אלה החדשות שעורך רועי ולד.
JM in the AM. בוא נעבור להטבות לחברי הסתדרות. מהיום אפשר לקנות ולחסוך בהוצאות. אתם מוזמנים להצטרף חינם. There we go. JM in the AM, Monday morning. It, it sounds like there's a... Uh, It sounds like there's a uh, heat wave in Israel. 92 degrees there right now on a Monday afternoon. So I would guess that's accurate, that there's a uh, heat wave in Israel. JM and AM on this Monday. It's a nine days format. Rabbi Beryl Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN for information. 1-800-499-WEIN for information. Also RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Keep that in mind. Um, right now, if you go to artscroll.com, 10% off on everything, plus free shipping with promo code radio, 15% off of every Rabbi Barrel Wine title, plus free shipping if you use promo code radio. Go to artscroll.com, artscroll.com for all the information. And enjoy using promo code radio site-wide. This portion of NSN programming brought to you by our friends at A&H. Abel's and Hyman Kosher Hot Dog Sausage and Deli is the world's best. Check out their website, kosherdogs.net. 10% off when you use promo code radio. Kosherdogs.net. 10% off with promo code radio. Uh, don't forget, if you know somebody who's uh, unemployed or if you're unemployed and you want us to check out your resume, you never know when we can match you up with somebody um, either organization or company that's looking for employees, send us uh, your resume to resume at nachomsegel.com, resume at nachomsegel.com, anything, of course, in the not-for-profit Jewish executive arena. We will pass along to our friends at the Joel Paul Group in New York City, as you would expect. Next week, by the way, August the 4th, We have a big week, actually, coming up. Um, Sunday, we're going to be doing our Yom NCSY show, which you will hear Monday morning between 6 and 9 a.m. I'll talk about Yom NCSY in a moment. Um, Then uh, Tuesday, Danielle Renoff, author of the book Peas, Love, and Carrots, that everyone seems to be talking about. She will be with us here at JM and the AM on Tuesday morning. Will I be able to conduct an interview with one of the world's Most well-known cookbook authors at this point. Yeah, now she's a well-known cookbook author. We'll find out. That'll be Tuesday here at JM in the AM. Wednesday, we broadcast live from one of the NCSY summer programs. It may not be in Beit Meir. It may not be at NCSY Colel. But it's going to be from an NCSY summer program. We're looking forward to that. Now, here's the story with Yom NCSY. Yom NCSY 2020 happens with Mordechai Shapiro and Benny Friedman this coming Sunday night, beginning at 8 p.m. Eastern time. Again, Yom NCSY, Benny Friedman, Mordechai Shapiro. It happens this coming uh, Sunday night, starting at the 8 p.m. Eastern time. And everybody, and I mean everybody, and, and this is an opportunity, I should say, um, or, or more accurately, this is a, uh, a time when um, everybody around the world gets an opportunity to really participate on the same level 
in Yomensiaswa. Usually you have a major advantage if you're at the actual gathering in Israel. But this time everyone's going to be together virtually. Yomensiaswa, the mega event in Israel with over 2000 people as the as the um announcement says is normally the highlight of the summer. Although we won't be able to gather in Israel this year, it won't stop us from uniting to celebrate and offer gratitude to the heroes in each of our lives who rose to the occasion and helped us over the last few months. Parents, educators, healthcare pros, essential workers, and teens themselves. This year's virtual event, Sunday, August 2nd, will be a night to remember filled with music, inspiration, and unity, and it'll be live-streamed around the world. There's an ambitious goal. And by the way, clock a vote to everybody. <laughs> Really, collect a vote to everybody. They have an ambitious goal of $136,000 for their scholarship fund as part of the YOMNCSY campaign. They've raised over seventy-five grand already, which is unbelievable. By supporting the YOMNCSY event, you'll not only be supporting this night of inspiration, you'll also be enabling more teens to have a life-changing summer in 2021. They have a lot of corporate sponsors, including uh, Ya'ad Yisrael, uh, Ariel Tours, uh, Turo's Lander Colleges, JM Food Design, Format Press, Yeshiva University, uh, Office of Admissions, FM Home Loans. Uh, you could become a corporate sponsor or just a sponsor. Not just, but you could be a sponsor. You could also purchase a live stream pass for your household. For $18, you literally can get everybody in your house involved in this coming Sunday night's concert with Mordechai Shapiro and Benny Friedman. It really is a no-brainer. That's the bottom line. This thing is a no-brainer. Uh, if you want to support a good cause, great. You could donate. But just by buying a ticket to the MNCSY concert, you're supporting a great cause, and you're getting a ticket that will allow everybody in your house to watch it this coming Sunday night. So if you want a great Nahamu weekend event, here it is. And you don't have to even leave your home. <laughs> How amazing is that? summer.ncsy.org slash yomncsy summer.ncsy.org slash yomncsy it is amazing how everything they touch everything they touch with these ncsy summer programs just ends up being a great event and this one looks like it's shaping up to be an amazing event this coming Sunday night Um, what else did I want to mention to everybody did I get through everything for now? Ellie Beer is going to join us, 8 o'clock. Rev Darone Parrots in the 8 o'clock hour. All coming up here at JM in the AM. And told you about Danielle Renoff. She'll join us on Tuesday with the brand new book, which is pretty amazing, I must say. Here it is. Hundreds of recipes, 60,000 followers. Danielle Renoff's cookbook is coming next week. She'll be with us at JM in the AM with over 430 pages and over 350 recipes on Tuesday morning, 745, right here at JM in the AM. Mark your calendars, as the expression goes. You don't want to miss it, that's for sure. Uh, we are um, we are featuring Rabbi Beryl Wine's lectures during our uh, nine days format here at JM in the AM. Many of you know that. And now we are in the series entitled Jewish Societies in Retrospect. Jewish Societies in Retrospect. And this one is called Jews in the United States. This will be interesting. Rabbi Beryl Wine, information about his lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN. Rabbi Wine, W-E-I-N.com. And don't forget, anything at artscroll.com. 
Anything at artscroll.com. That's a Rabbi Barrel Wine title. Um, 15% off this week if you use promo code radio. 15% off and free shipping if you use promo code radio for anything Rabbi Barrel Wine related. And that is in celebration of our great relationship with Rabbi Wine over all these years and how he spearheads our nine days format at JM in the AM. Thank you to our friends at Artscroll. For that. Jewish societies in retrospect, Jews in the United States, Rabbi Beryl Wine at JM in the AM. This entire lecture series was dedicated to Nishmas Ilio ben Yehuda, who passed away the 27th of Tevis, 5776. It's in memory of Edwin Jacob Berkowitz. I thank the Berkowitz family for their kindness. The Jewish experience in the United States of America is different than any of the other societies that we have discussed. Uh, There are a number of reasons for it, but the main reason for it is that this was the first time that Jews were in a country that did not have an official religion. The Jews in the Middle East the Ottoman Empire, Islam was the official religion. In Europe, all of the countries had Christianity as the religion. And the religion and the state were always connected somehow. Even after the French Revolution, when the uh, state uh, divorced itself from the Catholic Church, nevertheless, Uh, a sizable part of the population, if not even the majority, remained Roman Catholic, and the church had and has a great deal of influence, political and otherwise. And you see, uh, in our time, all over Europe, there are political parties called the Christian Democratic Party. In the United States, no such thing ever existed. So that was one major difference, is that, as we will point out, uh, there was plenty of anti-Semitism in the United States, but there was no officially established religion. The second difference was that the United States basically was a classless society. There were very wealthy people, there were aristocratic people, but the common person felt uh, that uh, one could rise to almost any heights uh, by the dint of one's efforts or by economic luck or by all sorts of methods. Now, the Jews that fled Europe, there were three major influxes of Eastern European Jews. The Sephardic Jews came to America in colonial times, but they were very small in number. Maybe a thousand Jews at the time of George Washington. Have a population of one and a half to two million people. And they were all Sephardim. But early on, Jews rose to uh, rank in the United States. In the War of 1812, 
there was a Jewish admiral, Uriah Levy, who was a, an admiral in the United States Navy and won a battle against the British at Lake Champlain. And uh, there always were Jews, again, Sephardic Jews, uh, that uh, were uh, influential and wealthy, but there was a very small Jewish congregation in the United States. That began to change in the 1840s. The 1840s in Europe was a time of revolution, great turbulence, great uncertainty. And there were wars. Uh, So uh, Europeans began to emigrate to the United States. Most of the immigrants were from England and Ireland. There was a potato famine in Ireland. People were running away from Europe. And uh, many of those that ran were Germans, and non-Jewish Germans. And they settled mainly in uh, the Ohio Valley, in Cincinnati, and in that area. And that was in the, uh, the Americans called it the Rhineland. Jews from Germany also began to come in the 1840s. These Jews were uh, reformed Jews, completely non-observant. And uh, they made a great success of themselves here. There's a famous uh, book called Our Crowd by Stephen Birmingham, which details the German Jews that came in the 1840s. And they went into finance. They were the first Jews to come on Wall Street. They made brokerage houses. Kuhn, Loeb. It's interesting, the Rothschilds never invested in the United States, which probably was to their detriment. They were merchants. They made uh, great department stores, Macy's, Bloomingdale's, Gimbel's. They made a great success of themselves, financially. And they established uh, the infrastructure for American Jewry. And they therefore had as their goal to assimilate Jews as rapidly as possible into American society. And since they were reform, so uh, that meant that uh, you didn't have to convert in America, as for instance you had to do in Germany if you wanted to get ahead. But it meant that there was no vestige of Jewish tradition present here. In the Civil War in the 1860s, Jews fought on both sides of the war. The Secretary of State of the Confederacy was Judah P. Benjamin, who was a Sephardic Jew, 
There were many Jews that owned plantations in the South, and there were also Jews that were in the slave trade. There were Jews on the North, probably more in the North than in the South, the Southern armies. Uh, The first instance of open discrimination against Jews we find in the Civil War by General Ulysses Grant. In the Civil War, uh, there were peddlers that came into the camps of the armies to sell the soldiers either food or utensils or clothing or trinkets. And uh, he expelled, and he said it specifically, all Jewish peddlers. They could not come into the Union lines. Uh, Lincoln uh, countermanded the order. He said you could not discriminate in that way. Either you don't let any peddlers in or you let all the peddlers in. But Grant was not an anti-Semite. That was just the way it was. And we'll have later that when Grant became president of the United States, he appointed the first Jewish member of the cabinet in America, Oscar Strauss. And he had many Jewish friends uh, who helped him in his financial, he was constantly in financial difficulty. In the late 1860s, a man came to the United States from Germany. His name was Isaac Mayer Wise. Now, uh, he was a radical reformist who was so radical that he was pretty much kicked out of Germany. But he came to the United States, and he was a very charismatic person, talented, an orator, a writer, an organizer. And he rapidly rose to become the head of the reform movement in the United States. He founded the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, where his base was, because that's where the Germans lived. And uh, he, uh, in 1872, uh, created what was called the Pittsburgh Platform at a convention He created the Union of American Hebrew Congregations, which is the uh, synagogue branch of the reform movement. And he created Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, which was the rabbinic training school for reform. And he uh, had a convention in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And the Pittsburgh platform, which was adopted was extreme reform. No Hebrew in the prayer book, no mention of Zion and Jerusalem. Uh, We are American citizens. Uh, No observance of any ritual whatsoever. We are interested only in the charitable values of Judaism. And that became the basic infrastructure of Jewish America. He created uh, the institution of federated charities, 
that the Jewish community would operate charities and raise money from the Jewish community, but that the charities were, so to speak, non-denominational and uh, were not uh, particularly Jewish at all. And that was a long process of the federations, a hundred-year process, uh, till the federations became a little more Jewish, as they are in our time. So you had uh, the Sephardic Jews here, and you had the German Jews. Uh, there were few, if any, Eastern European Jews here, and therefore there were few, if any, Orthodox Jews in the country. In the 1870s, America expanded westward to take the whole continent, kill out the Indians, and take their land. And America was the land of opportunity. If you came and you went west, you could get, uh, what did they say, 40 acres and a mule. People who never owned anything in Europe and had no chance of owning anything in Europe began to emigrate to the United States in vast numbers. So, for instance, almost half of southern Italy moved to the United States. Forty percent of the Irish population moved to the United States. And because of the persecution of Jews under the Tsar in Eastern Europe, a vast, large Jewish emigration began. It was facilitated by a shipping company owned by a Jew, Balin, who was a German Jew. It was called the Hamburg-America Line. So you had to get to Hamburg in Germany, and then you could get on the ship. No one needed a passport. No one needed a visa. You're talking about a different time completely. And you're talking about the fact that two and a half million Eastern European Jews picked up and over 40 years came to the United States of America. The Eastern European Jews were overwhelmingly observant, though they were in the vast majority ignorant. Ignorant in Judaism as well. Because Judaism in Eastern Europe was a societal religion. It was not a book religion. The average Jew never saw Gomorrah in his life. Jewish women generally were illiterate, could not read or write. But the idea of America spread like wildfire. Shalom Aleichem has an essay in which he said the word America alone was magic. J.M. and the A.M. Rabbi Beryl Wine on Jews in the United States in the series entitled Jewish Societies in Retrospect. Monday morning, we are going to uh, try to conclude our lecture with Harry Wine between now and the end of the show. We actually have a good chunk of time for it coming up in the next half hour. And then uh, Ellie Beer and Rabbi Daron Peretz are scheduled to join us. 
Monday morning, JM in the AM with sun and clouds, hot and humid weather, and a high of 99 here in New York. Clear tonight, low 80. Afternoon thunderstorms tomorrow, a high of 94. And, of course, the heat wave is supposed to break on Thursday, as you would expect, <laughs> on Tisha <B'Av. laughs> That's when the heat wave is finally supposed to be over. <laughs> Why is that not surprising? Thanks so much for joining us. Those of you who want to support our campaign to keep us going here at JM and the AM and the Nahum Siegel Network, your support is most welcome. It's um, fjbunity.org, fjbunity.org, and I thank you. Don't forget, NCSY has Yom NCSY this coming Sunday, 8 p.m., with Mordechai Shapiro, Benny Friedman, and Charlie Harari. Buy your tickets and support NCSY right now. It's $18 a ticket for the full family, which is pretty amazing, uh, by going to summer.ncsy.org slash yomncsy. Summer.ncsy.org slash yomncsy. Simple as that. Do that and uh, get ready to um, uh, get ready for a great concert. Shabbos Nachamu weekend this coming Sunday night, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. A concert where you don't even have to leave your home and the entire family can enjoy it, which is pretty amazing, I must say. So they're getting ready and gearing up for a wonderful event this coming Sunday. And I hope you'll all participate. Um, again, summer.ncsy.org slash yomncsy. More of Rabbi Wine in a moment. First, Rabbi David Goldwasser. His words, Zechonishmas HaRav Zebedev Yosef and Zechonishmas Esther Basar Yosef Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. We read in the Kinnis, Ba'afapai Yizlumayim Dimei Lahagira. Water will stream from my eyelids, running over with tears. The great Reb Shmelk of Nicholsburg asked the question, Why haven't our tears taken effect over all the generations? If you remember, there were also tears of Esav when he cried, Borcheni Gamoniavi, please bless me as well. The question is, haven't B'nai Israel cried so many more times, so many more days? Isn't there a law? that it all can be bottle b'shishim, annulled in 60 parts. So why haven't all of the pools of tears that have been shed been mevatel or annulled, the tears of that one time that Esav cried? He answered that there's a law. The law is min b'mino. If you have the exact same species, afilu be'elef lo bottle, it will not be annulled even in a thousand times. If you have a small little piece of meat, tiny, that falls into milk, it can become bottle b'shishim. However, if you have milk that may not be from a kosher source and it falls into milk, which is the same species, then even a thousand parts will not be mavatalit, it will not annul it. He cried because he wanted all the desires of this world. We sometimes also cry, not because of spiritual pursuits, but rather because we lack things in the material world. However, if we would cry L'shem Shemayim for the needs to serve Hashem, we would cry about the Tzara Shechina for the pain of the Divine Presence, then our tears would have the power to be Batal B'shishim and would be able to annul the one-time crying of Esav. The great Hasidic master, Reb Chaim of Tzanz, 
was once together with his Hasidim, and they were deeply steeped in prayer, davening. At one point, the entire assemblage was moved to tears, but there was one Chassid who couldn't bring himself to tears. Try as he would, he couldn't cry. He quietly slipped into a small kitchen that was right off from the base madrash. He took an onion out of the pantry. He cut it in half, returned with it to his place in the base madrash. And there, as he brought the onion closer to his face, he began to cry. The great Reb Chaim of Sanz saw him. And when the chassid realized that the Rebbe had been watching him, he was overcome with embarrassment. After the davening, when everyone else had left, the Sanzer approached the chassid and quietly remarked, You should know that the Rebbe Shalom Hashem was more moved by your anguish that you weren't able to cry than he was moved by the actual tears of the other chassidim. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day. J.M. in the A.M. Thank you very much, Rabbi Goldwasser. Uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine's lectures, information available at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. I also point out that our friends at Art Scroll have every Rabbi Wine uh, book, every Rabbi Wine offering uh, on sale this week if you use promo code radio. Literally go to uh, artscroll.com. Again, that's artscroll.com. Use promo code radio, and you'll get 15% off and free shipping on any book that was written and presented by Rabbi Beryl Wine. And I thank our friends uh, at Artscroll for that. So always use promo code radio at artscroll.com. If you feel like you want to uh, comment on the app, go to the NSN, Nahum Single Network app for Android and iPhone, and comment away. Mayor Weingarten and the return of the Israel show is this coming Monday, one week from today on the 3rd of August. The Israel show at 9 a.m. Eastern time on the 3rd of August. Uh, this coming uh, this coming Monday, a week from today. And I thank everybody out there for your reaction to our nine days format. Uh, right now we're in the middle of Rabbi Wine's lecture on Jews in the United States from the series entitled Jewish Societies in retrospect at JM in the AM. And people picked up and left, especially uh, people who felt they had no hope in Europe. So there was always an upper class, as small as it was, they were not going to come to America. Uh, the scholars also we're not going to come to America. But the masses were going to come to America. And they're the ones that came. And they came to an America that uh, was rife with anti-Semitism, a nativist America that was against immigrants. Uh, they came to squalor terrible privation and poverty but believe it or not it still was better than what they left and therefore uh, as bad as the Lower East Side was it was better than living in the Warsaw and uh, this uh, tremendous wave of immigration 
change the face of American cities. I mean, New York is a prime example, but all of the cities of the East Coast, all the port cities, Boston, Philadelphia, even in the South, Galveston, Texas, because the boat stopped there, San Francisco, and because Chicago was the railroad center of the United States, there was a time when almost every railroad had to pass through Chicago. So there became a very large Jewish community in Chicago, eventually a quarter of a million Jews. Uh, These Jews were Eastern European. They spoke Yiddish. Uh, They had uh, a traditional lifestyle. That generation of immigrants did not assimilate because they did not speak English and uh, they didn't have a chance to. They were very active in the needle trades, in small businesses, but they were destroyed by the fact that America then had a six-day work week and if you wanted to get a job, uh, only with f- rare exceptions could you uh, not work on Saturday. The famous statement was, if you don't come in on Saturday, don't bother to come in on Monday. In my time yet, which is a long time ago, I admit, uh, I remember in my father's synagogue, on the west side of Chicago. So they had an early minion on Shabbos. Today, the early minion on Shabbos is a uh, refuge for holiness. Right? That's the minion God davens at. People say, I looked at Ashkoma minion, right? But in my time, the Ashkoma minion meant that you went to shul, you heard Kriya Satora, you dive in Musaf, and then you got on the trolley and you went to work. And I'm talking about a shul that the Ashkoma Minion had 750 people. The second Minion that didn't go to work, or they went to work later, I, just, I don't know, also was 750 people. But the destruction of the Sabbath, the fact that it could not be maintained, caused uh, the breakdown of the Jewish community almost immediately when coming to America. The uh, American Jew uh, revered education as uh, he or she does today. They all felt that education was the stepping stone uh, to a better life. So the uh, parents could remain uneducated and not speak English or speak English with a heavy Eastern European accent. But the children were going to be American. And there was the American public school system. And the public school system in the United States then 
in the late 1800s and until, and really until the Second World War, uh, was uh, built upon the principle of the melting pot. The melting pot meant that we're going to take every culture, wherever you come from, but we're going to melt it all down and you're going to come out American. Now, American meant a lot of things. American meant uh, Sunday was the day off. American meant Christmas. American meant... uh, that uh, things that were anachronistic, strange customs from the old world had to be discarded. I remember I went to uh, public school till seventh grade, and uh, I had all almost all uh, Irish spinster teachers who really taught us very well because that was the only thing they had in life. And they poured it into us. But uh, we knew every Christmas carol. We knew all the mythologies. We knew everything. Because that was part of having a public school education. So what about Jewish schools? And that's where the American Jewish community really... uh, the Sabbath was the first breakdown, Jewish education was the second. There were afternoon schools. In other words, you got out of public school at 3 o'clock, 3.30 was the afternoon Hebrew school. Now, when I grew up, the afternoon Hebrew school was still 3.30 to 7 o'clock. So that was a pretty long day for kids. And the quality of uh, people who taught in those schools was not especially high. And as I look back at it, there was much physical abuse, let alone verbal abuse. It was an unappetizing place. But uh, the rule was that if you wanted to be bar mitzvah, you had to attend the afternoon Hebrew school. So uh, essentially was an education of a 12-year-old. And uh, then they never opened the book again in their lives. There never was anything else uh, that they became uh, aware of. So uh, uh, for most American Jews, the concept of God and of Judaism and of Jewish tradition was that of a 12-year-old even though they were 40 and 50 years old. But it never grew up with them. And therefore, uh, throughout this time, uh, the Jewish community was already drifting. But there was almost no intermarriage because the non-Jew would not marry a Jew. That was the great barrier to intermarriage in the 20s and 30s and 40s. But uh, once, uh, for instance, uh, presidents of the United States uh, could have Jewish sons-in-law, 
So then all barriers are removed. When barriers are removed and you have no Jewish education and you're never brought up with the Sabbath or anything else, so intermarriage is a natural uh, plague to be expected. In the 1920s, after the First World War, there was a second wave of emigration from Eastern Europe. The communist revolution uh, helped drive it. The anti-Semitism in Poland and Lithuania and Hungary. The only country in Europe that was uh, not anti-Semitic was Czechoslovakia. And uh, the Jews uh, came in great numbers to the United States after the First World War. Again, uh, there was a nativist reaction in the United States. And the Congress in 1924 passed a immigration law that restricted immigration from Central and Southern and Eastern Europe. That meant they couldn't say Jews couldn't come, but they could say, as, uh, as we have a travel ban today, that people from Libya can't come. And the Supreme Court holds that that's legitimate. It's within the power of the United States government. So they said, if you come from Poland, you can't come. They didn't say if you're Jewish. They said, if you come from Poland... There's a quota, 25,000 a year, whatever it was. If you come from Lithuania, you can't come. And uh, this uh, made it increasingly difficult for Jews to come to the United States. Always we were asked, uh, why didn't the Jews leave Europe? Basically because they had nowhere to go. There's no country willing to welcome them. You're talking about moving millions of people. So uh, as a practical matter, uh, that question is really uh, not in place. In the 1920s in the United States, it was called the Roaring Twenties. After the First World War, America withdrew from the world. Didn't want to have any part of the world's problems. Didn't want to be engaged in any more European wars. And uh, it uh, wanted to have a good time, which is uh, probably the largest industry in the United States still today, is having a good time. Very rarely do we achieve that, but we're always trying. The Jews in the United States invented a new industry called film, movies. So that's one of the uh, most remarkable things. Beginning in the early 1900s, there were little uh, places called Nickelodeons. Basically, you put in a nickel and it showed you for two minutes something. But the film industry developed, and it was developed by Eastern and Central European Jews. At first, uh, it was in New York. Then they moved to Fort Lee, New Jersey. 
which for 10 years was the film capital of the world. And then they decided to get out of the East Coast completely. And they moved to California, to Los Angeles, to Hollywood. Because California was always, uh, so to speak, the escapist place. The weather was different. The fruit was different. It was exotic. H.L. Mencken, who was a uh, great uh, satirist uh, in America, said that uh, God uh, stood America on end and everything that was loose fell to California. (laughs) The Jews created Hollywood. And they created it because they wanted to create an American image as they imagined America should be. And uh, the uh, films that were produced all reflected this dream of an ideal America. Uh, For instance, the first sound movie full-length sound movie in 1928 was called The Jazz Singer. And uh, it starred uh, Al Jolson, who was a Jew. Not only he was a Jew, he was a chazan at one time. He was famous on vaudeville for... uh, singing in blackface, which then was acceptable today, it would be uh, unimaginable. And the theme of the movie was that his parents are old-fashioned Eastern European Jews. His father, in fact, is the cantor in the synagogue. But he becomes a singer, and he falls in love with a non-Jewish woman. They marry. The father won't accept her. The mother is softer. But she is the greatest paragon of virtue ever. And the climax of the movie is that the father is too sick to recite the Kol Nidre prayers. So the son, Al Jolson, comes and performs the Kol Nidre prayer, and Mary is sitting next to his mother in the women's gallery. Now the message of the movie was clear. The message of the movie is that this is the way it's supposed to be. And the uh, influence of Hollywood uh, cannot be underestimated at all. It it still remains today. It's an enormous propaganda tool. Because you saw it on the screen. And Jews were inveterate moviegoers. My mother used to take me to the movie every Sunday. cost a nickel. I saw all the cowboy movies and everything. Jews always went to the movies. 
So that had an enormous influence on American Jewish life. And in fact, later, uh, the Jews invented Christmas. Because all the movies about Christmas were made by Jews. Irving Berlin wrote the music for it. And uh, so they created Christmas in their image of what they thought it should be. And that's why uh, the churches and others objected greatly. They said, you're taking the Christ out of Christmas. But that's what happened. And because of the power of the movies, that is American culture. That's the way it is. Another point in the 1920s. In 1896... Uh, an Orthodox Sephardic rabbi in New York founded a school to train American rabbis for the American rabbinate. He called it the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. The institution uh, floundered and it was bankrupt. It was about to close. In the early 1900s, there was a Jewish financier by the name of Jacob D. Schiff, who was a very powerful man on Wall Street, very wealthy man. And he took an interest in the seminary, and he was determined that such an institution was necessary for American Jewry because he said the old-fashioned rabbis that come over from Eastern Europe uh, cannot deal with the youth, they cannot deal with American life. Most of them can't speak English. They don't give up their old ways. They dress differently, they look differently. We have to have... And that's what the Jewish Theological Seminary was founded upon. And they hired as its chancellor a famous scholar by the name of Solomon Schechter. Now Schechter had been the expert uh, on the Cairo Geniza. And and he was uh, uh, financed by... uh, British Protestants and Cambridge University. And he uh, did a great deal of great scholarship. And he was a, a great scholar. But he already uh, denied the validity of the Torah as a holy book. And he already had a vision that uh, modern America would have to look different than the shtetl in Eastern Europe. And uh, with that, Schechter eventually developed uh, what grew into the conservative movement in the United States. Now, they were never going to be as radical as reform. And uh, they called themselves conservative because they were conserving Judaism. In other words, they were taking the traditions and the obligations and keeping them, but they were going to put them in a more modern dress and make it more appealing 
to the American Jewish public. At the onset, it was very hard to tell the difference between the Orthodox and between the conservative. The conservative used the Orthodox Siddur. They uh, demanded uh, observance of the Sabbath. They demanded a kosher home. And many of the children of leading Orthodox rabbis became the vanguard of the conservative movement. In the 1920s, it grew. In the 1930s, it expanded even more. By 1950, what happened was that the, in many of the cities in America, there were great demographic changes. The neighborhoods changed. The Jewish neighborhood went under completely. Jews moved to the suburbs. When that happened, when the synagogue was rebuilt, it was no longer rebuilt as an Orthodox synagogue. It was rebuilt as a conservative synagogue. The conservative movement was built upon Orthodoxy. But because of its nature, it could not maintain itself. In 1948, uh, because of the movement to the suburbs, so uh, when you move to the suburbs, uh, it wasn't like uh, apartment buildings. I mean, uh, I grew up in Chicago on the west side in four or six blocks. Everybody was there. Big blocks of apartment buildings. Here you had single homes. People wanted land. So... uh, you, you were uh, eight, ten miles away from the synagogue. How are you going to get there? So the conservative movement, uh, after much inner struggle, permitted driving to the synagogue on Shabbos, on the Sabbath. They uh, issued a uh, halachic responsa justifying it. What they failed to reckon with is that people said to themselves, listen, if I can drive to the synagogue, I can drive to the golf course. Driving is driving. And to a certain extent, uh, they shot themselves in the foot. But by 1950, they were the growing future of Jewish America. The 1950 yearbook of the American Jewish Congress, or the American Jewish Committee, one of them, uh, said that orthodoxy will disappear in the next 20 years and that the future of American Jewry is in the conservative movement. And the truth of the matter is we believed it. The New Orthodox believed it. We didn't think there was much hope because the whole thing fell apart in front of our eyes. There were 42 Orthodox synagogues on the old west side of Chicago. Only six survived. Nobody wanted an Orthodox rabbi that couldn't speak English. Now, there were a number of Orthodox rabbinical institutions 
It was uh, Reitz, uh, uh, Yeshiva University, then it was Yeshiva College, uh, there was uh, Torah Madas in New York, to a smaller extent there was Chaim Berlin, and there was the Yibu Theological College in Chicago. But that was the ball game. And many of these uh, institutions had their students uh, desert them and attend the seminary uh, to become a conservative rabbi because they believed that that was the wave of the future. That was the only way it was going to work. The 1930s was the Depression. The Depression was a terrible experience for everyone. In our time of affluence, we cannot imagine what people went through. And uh, nobody ate uh, meat meals every night of the week. I was raised on peanut butter and jelly, which I still love. (laughs) And uh, in the Depression, people looked for scapegoats. And there was a tremendous wave of anti-Semitism in America in the 1920s and 1930s. There was the Ku Klux Klan, anti-Negro, anti-Catholic, anti-Jewish. Jews were lynched in the South. When Hitler came to power in the 1930s, so there was a great section of German-American citizens who backed him. There was the German-American Bund, run by a man named Fritz Kuhn. I remember the rallies they had in Chicago. I was a small child, but um, I saw how frightened my parents were. They would march in the streets. They had rallies in the Chicago Stadium, 18,000, 20,000 people. You go Ohio. Jews had a very low profile. You didn't raise your head. And therefore, uh, uh, the, that mentality unfortunately carried over during the time of the Holocaust. Jews were bewitched by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He was God. Uh, that's when the Jews became uh, uh, the and the overwhelming majority voters for the Democratic Party and uh, Roosevelt had Jewish advisors Samuel Rosenman Stephen Wise Henry Morgenthau And there were Jewish Supreme Court justices, Brandeis, Cardozo, Frankfurter. But all of these Jews uh, were uh, assimilationist. Frankfurter was married out of the faith. They all believed that the future lay in not making waves. 
you have a famous incident that's recorded in many books regarding the Holocaust that the leader of the Polish underground in Warsaw escaped in 1942 and made his way to England and Churchill sent him on to America to see Roosevelt and he said I'm going to tell them what's going on and Roosevelt refused to see him but he got an appointment with Frankfurter now Frankfurter they felt was close to Roosevelt if he could convince Frankfurter he would get the message to Roosevelt so this uh, Polish patriot uh, described what was happening the roundups the shootings the ghetto the Jews are being destroyed in front of our eyes after he finished Frankfurter said to him I don't believe it so the man who uh, accompanied him said Mr. Justice He's telling you what he saw. It's an eyewitness. Uh, it's absolutely true. JM and the AM, a little bit of a cliffhanger, I know, but uh, we will continue with our Wines lecture on Jews in the United States coming up at America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. Heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSingle.com and the NachumSingle Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. We will continue after our conversation with Ellie Beer. We will continue and, and please God, conclude this lecture from Rabbi Beryl Wine about Jews in the United States, part of his uh, Jewish Societies in Retrospect series. Information at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com. And don't forget, all of the Art Scroll titles written by Rabbi Wine are 15% off and free shipping this week with promo code RADIO because of our featuring or by wine in the um, in the nine days format here at JM and the AM. Yo Man CSY is Sunday with Mordechai Shapiro and Benny Friedman. Instead of us being in Israel, everybody gets to uh, watch this live from the comfort of your own home. Shabbos Nachamu, Sunday night, 8 p.m. Benny Friedman, Mordechai Shapiro, uh, summer.ncsy.org slash Yo CSY. It's 18 bucks, well worth it. And boy, they're on their way to their fundraising goal already, which is amazing for the summer of 2021. Uh, again, it's um, summer.ncsy.org slash Yom NCSY. Ellie Beer is the founder of United Hatzalah of Israel. He's been a guest of ours many times. The last time I flew to Israel, which, believe it or not, is now over half a year ago. It was uh, just around New Year's Day. Of 2020, I had the uh, chance to actually sit next to Ellie uh, during the during that my most recent journey to the Holy Land. Many of you know that he's a COVID recovery. Uh, when he was in Florida the week of Purim, he got COVID and bad. He was put on a respirator about 30 days and two different shifts of being on a respirator and sedated. Survived, went to Israel uh, to a hero's welcome, deservedly. And I would say for those, for the group of people in our community around the world who survived COVID, 
he had one of the most harrowing experiences, obviously the most harrowing experiences were our, were, were our friends and family members who perished during the plague, during the terrible disease. Uh, he survived, thank God, um, and lives to tell about it, and even donated plasma uh, this week at Hadassah in Kerem because his antibody numbers are so high. I was able to donate plasma to help uh, those who are now suffering from COVID. Uh, but he did tell me off the air that there are some after effects of this terrible disease that he would like everybody to know about. And for those of us who, thank God, Beliai and Hura have worked really, really hard since Purim not to get sick, I think he'll serve as a good reminder why it's a good idea to continue the safe practices. Eli Beer, Baruch Rofei Cholim, blessed is the one who cures the ill. Welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you very much for having me again. It's a pleasure to be here. It's amazing speaking to you. I remember the trip to Israel <laughs> when we were together and we had a good opportunity to schmooze. And now I'm saying to myself, don't take that for granted, Nahum. You hear Ellie Beer's voice, things could have been very different. And thank God we, you and I are speaking now in front of this great audience and talking about the chesed of the one above and uh, recounting what was a terrible experience, but thank God a great homecoming for you in Israel. Um, you know, it's described in the news reports that it was two different shifts of, of going onto a ventilator in order for the doctors to help you survive this down in Miami. You were in Florida when this got you the week of Purim. And this was, you know, more than a 30 day ordeal after that. Uh, you know, I, I wonder in retrospect now when people see the results of those who were put on ventilators, was that, and I'm not trying to criticize anybody or be a sensationalist, I'm just asking out of curiosity, was that the right decision medically to do for you at that time? It's a great question. Uh, it's, it's very hard to answer. I could tell you why I decided to go to allow them to put me on a ventilator when I, had a, I could hardly breathe, and the doctor said, you know, we need your approval for a ventilator. I called my doctor in Israel, Dr. Rifkin. He's a volunteer of United States too. He's a professor in Hadassah. And I asked him, what do you think? He says, try your best not to go on a ventilator. Wow. So uh, the doctors in the hospital say, you need to go. And they started a whole argument on the phone, like a real Israeli negotiations on the phone between Israel and America. So I called Dr. Zev Neuwirth, a good friend of mine, a doctor in Miami, and I said, what do you think? What should I do? He says, do they have ventilators available in the hospital? This is right after Forum. Right. When in Europe, they were out of ventilators right. and everything else. So he says, do they have ventilators? I said, yes. He says, grab one while you still have one. Wow. When I heard that, <sighs> I said to the doctors, okay, put me on. You know, it was so scary. That, 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 these times are so scary. It was, apparently it was the reason I, I was saved is because of the ventilator and because of the proning and many other things they did to me. They did a lot of things, and of course, because of the davening of Amitro and the good chess that everyone was doing around the world, but it was really a decision I had to do that, that to make that time. It was a Friday afternoon. It was a very scary moment for me. It was the scariest moment of my life. I can only imagine, and not to minimize, God forbid, the chesed of the one above, but you know that there were people in similar situations. In fact, some might say in the month of March, the majority of people in similar situations who did not have 
the same outcome that you had. Um, I, I mean, I would I would imagine, not to be too dramatic, but I would imagine that in those moments before going on a ventilator when they're saying to you, you will be unconscious, right? You're essentially going to be unconscious for whatever the period of time is going to be. At that point, I would guess you communicated with your family in Israel who were thousands of miles away from you. I mean, for, for a moment, forget the fright and the fear of going on the ventilator. What was that experience like of telling family, you know, th- th- this is the this is a uh, th- this is a, I don't want to say a last ditch effort, but this is a you know a shot to to get me better, and I have no choice but to pursue this. In, in Israel, my family was sitting around the table at the Shabbos party night dinner, and I and they said good Shabbos to me before, and everything was okay. You know, they expected to talk to me after Shabbos, and all of a sudden, we made the decision to to induce me into coma and and put me on a ventilator. And I know what a ventilator is. You know, I was in, I'm involved with itself for 32 years. <laughs> you true. know, I've seen <laughs> thousands of people, unfortunately, in the worst conditions that we had to intubate them. And um, and give them like assist them with uh, breathing. They couldn't breathe on their own anymore. So I call my wife five or six times. Now my wife is a Hatzalah volunteer. She right. didn't answer the phone. Right. So I finally decided to call her walkie-talkie phone. Right. And um, she answers the phone, and I told her, you know, this is it. They're putting me, you know, they're, they're, they're inducing me into coma. Right. And you have to. That time was like Europe was a disaster. Disaster, right. you know, Italy and New York, I mean, and New York started to get bad already at that time. New York was about to, it was starting, yes, and people were dying all over. And Miami was still nothing was happening, but I knew the results, and I told my wife, "Listen, I need to say goodbye to all my kids. I want to say goodbye." So she said, "Don't scare them." That's what she said. Wow. I said, I'll, "I'll make sure not to scare them, and I'll just say to them." And I told each one of them how much I love them and how much I want them to continue the good deeds they do. Every single one of them is so special, always volunteering, always doing things. Three of them are volunteers of Atella. My son-in-law, too, so it's four, and then my wife. They're always busy doing good things and helping people. I just said, continue doing that and make me proud. Make your mother proud. And and then I went back to my wife, and I said, listen, I'm going to send you a will on my WhatsApp because, you know, last the last will I had written was, 15 years ago, you know? Yeah. So I just wanted to make sure that she knows that, you know, I'm, I'm preparing that just in case something doesn't work out, she'll, she'll know what's going on. And, uh, and then I went ahead and I sent a message to like a goodbye message to all the Hatzalah volunteers. Yeah. And I saw, I think that's the one we saw. I think that's the video that really went around the world. Ellie Beer with us, founder of United Hatzalah of Israel. I, I know that this may sound like a silly question but because you and I are pretty close in terms of you know knowing each other a long time i feel i could ask you when 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 you're being put under is there a confidence among you and the doctors that the that the odds are you'll wake up excuse me for putting it like that but you know was there a relative confidence that you know chances are this is going to work well i'll tell you um i told one of the doctors here in the room, they were preparing the intubation and all the equipment and the ventilator. He said to me, what can I do for you before, you know, we, we inject you? So I said, um, pray for me. Yep. So he says, he smiles and he says, uh, well, I'm, uh, I'm not a believer. You know, he wasn't Jewish. He says, I'm not. I'm an atheist. So I said, you know what? Just do a good deed for me. Just do a good deed for me if you, if you don't want to pray. 
Nice. And when I woke up a month over a month after, I met him a few days later, and he says to me, "You should just know, I was praying for you, and when you woke up, I'm a I'm back to be a believer." <sighs> and it was incredible. That means the doctor did not believe that I'll survive. Yep. And he was an atheist, and he was praying for me. And, and, and that I, was amazing. And, and I knew that chances are 5% survival here. That, that's the number you would use, 5%? In those times, yes. That's what the numbers were coming back from Europe. And, and when Don't you're, forget, and when they you're, and were when, burying and when you know, thousands of people right. every day. And, and when you're going to sleep, that's the number that's going into your head is 5%. Yeah, I just knew 100% I'm going to be among the 5%. Well, because you're a believer. And by the way, in addition to the doctors, who of course you've thanked internationally, obviously, the people down in Miami, I can only imagine the nurses and others who came in every day, multiple times per day to check on you. I mean, I'm sure you were introduced to a full team that while you were sleeping, you know, they were really dedicated to, to saving your life. I tell you, the hospital is very busy after a few days, and they had a lot of patients coming in from all over, and the great hospital, the University of Miami, and they do a good job and they really care. But, you know, hospitals are hospitals and they have so many patients. But thank God I had a really incredible people looking after me. And I got a lot of phone calls into the hospital from different people, from Israel, from America, from other countries, people just calling to see how I'm doing. Some people were even very famous. The hospital knew them, big donors. So it's for sure help. And at some point after I woke up, you know, I got... So many people sending food, and they couldn't even they couldn't even bring it up. But it yeah, wh- 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 pre- once you woke up, you must have been overwhelmed hearing about everything that had happened over the previous few weeks. I mean, there. Every, I, was, I mean, everybody was text. I was texting you while you were sleeping. You know, I mean, there, there were people texting. There were people concerned, following the news, looking for the latest article about your update, and then of course those who you can imagine, you know, visited and and paid careful attention to what was going on in the actual hospital. I mean. You must have become familiar with the overwhelming attention that this got worldwide while you were sleeping. It was incredible. The nurse comes in like four days after I woke up. I couldn't walk yet. And she says to me, uh, I want to ask you a personal uh, question, if you don't mind. I don't want to go into your private stuff. Yeah, sure, anything. She says, are you the president of Israel? (laughs) I said, this old African-American sweet lady. She says to me, you're the president of Israel. I said, why are you asking? She says, every like five minutes, people are calling and asking about you. So I thought maybe you're from, I knew you're from Israel. I said, maybe you're the president. I said, I'm the president of United Atzala. So it's, it's good enough. And I explained to them what it is, and they loved it. They really, most of these people never heard of United Atzala, you know, these right. nurses or doctors. But I got them so much excited about the organization. It, like, everyone was asking me questions. They were watching my TED Talk. They were going ahead and asked. Like, like there was, I, got, I got a lot of attention because of United Health Well, so they, I, I could, these, these are healthcare professionals. I can only imagine how much they appreciate what you do, frankly. Definitely. They realize that the first moments that someone needs help are the most crucial moments. Mm-hmm. And that's when these volunteers show up on the ambicycles, on the on their personal cars, and they save lives. And they work in the hospitals and even an emergency room, and they get a patient coming in in an ambulance. The big difference when he got treated immediately and he got treated after 10 minutes. 
Yeah, that's for sure. So they, they realize how important it is. Ellie Beer is with us, one of the world's most famous COVID survivors, thank God. Um, so you're having trouble walking once you wake up, understood. How long until you can walk with a walker and really start to get around? Um, I said to myself, what happened was I really could not, I couldn't even go to the bathroom. I was very weak. I lost 17 kilo, which is over 35 pounds wow. in one week, in one month. Wow. So it was like my, most of it was muscles because yeah. I didn't use any of my muscles. So my lungs got smaller and half the size because they were using a respirator to, to give me oxygen. Right. And uh, my, my I didn't have the power. I had to go start physiotherapy. And I said to myself, I'm not going to let myself just drown in this. And I started fighting to walk. I literally told her, I want, I want them to start it right away. Like, I want right away. And they brought in great people to help me every day, a few hours. And then when I was flying back to Israel. Which was, was how still, long after that? How long after that are you on the plane? Five days after. Wow. Which was unheard of because right. they didn't want to let me out. And I said, I'm not, I can't stay here. It was already too much not yep. to see my family for so long. Yep. It was very depressing. I was. I got into a, a, a stage in my life, which was probably the worst stage I've ever been. Thank God I should never be in, you know, I should, Mr. Shem, I should never be there again called ICU, ICU delirium, which I never knew what it was. And people that wake up from a coma, induced coma, they, they get so much medication, especially in the corona, corona patients, COVID patients, they get antibiotics, they get so many different types of medication and the sleeping medication in order for them not to wake up and take out the pipe. So it's constantly, they, they shove you in with so many medications, you get up, you terrible dreams, terrible deliriums, and you start thinking people want to kill you. And I actually thought the hospital there was a facility of people that were kidnapped. Wow. And I was kidnapped there, and, and they want to kill me soon. And I saw these weird people walking around dressed up from top to bottom, and they're walking around, and they're coming into my room 2 o'clock in the morning and, and poking me to get blood out of me all the time. And like, I actually started thinking that I was kidnapped, and I was I actually told my wife in Hebrew when they put her on the phone with me in Hebrew that they shouldn't understand. I said, call the FBI because they want to kill me soon. And if not, I'm going to be dead. You know, call the FBI right away. Like, And she thought I lost my mind. But only like two or three days later, I got back to myself and I realized that all these terrible feelings were, were natural. These happen to a lot of people that and, are in this situation. Yeah, we, we've heard this from others, and this is the and this is part of what you told me off the air in terms of you know what people need to know about how horrible this is, and even when you wake up, what, what you're going through. What about, I want to talk about two more things. One will be the reunion in Israel, which we'll get to. But what about the after effects today? On July 27th, right, obviously Purim was March 10th. People understand this timeline better than any year's timeline, frankly. Uh, Purim was March 10th. It's now July 27th. Ellie Beer is what? Is Ellie Beer 100% fine? Is Ellie Beer fine physically but not mentally? Fine mentally but not physically? What would you say? This is how many days after? Again, say what's what's the date you're asking about? I'm, I'm asking about today, the 27th of July. Oh, okay, okay. No, I was thinking about a month later. Um, the 27th of July, I feel amazing. I'll give you, I'll tell you a little tip. Yesterday, um, I felt so good. I uh, went to Hadassah Hospital in Yerushalayim and met with the blood bank people. And they took out a liter of um, 
plasma out of my body with antibodies. I have very high antibodies. I can imagine. Uh, they check me again. I always ask them whenever I go to the doctor, check me again for corona because I still have this terrible scare. Maybe I got it again. Right. And, of course, I got negative, and uh, my antibodies are very high, so they, they're actually going to save lives with oh. my... A leader, plasma. Do you know the answer to this? A liter of plasma helps how many people? Do we know the answer to that? or, or, or Not really. I don't know. They don't have, you know, all the data yet. It's still early to know what, what it does. But as, really I, as, I think of, or right, as I think about it, I would assume people need different amounts anyway, so you never know, you know, how many it's helping. Right. Look, uh, even if it helps one person, I'd be very oh, happy. Oh, are, are you kidding? Of course. And what about a month later? You just alluded to a month later. So if I would have spoken to you, let's say, on, I don't know, April 15th in the middle of Pesach or May 1st, what would you have told me about how you felt? So May, um, right after Pesach, I woke up. So I woke up a day after Pesach. I was totally depressed. I, I missed Pesach. A month after Pesach, I was sitting with my family in Tel Aviv. I was very weak, but I was going through uh, physiotherapy every day in Tel Aviv. And a month after Pesach, I made the most the nicest Pesach Shani ever, <laughs> ever. It was like a real Pesach. They the see- greatest part about it is I called my doctor and I said, could I have some wine? He says, yeah, I have four glasses. <laughs> and, and it, it was amazing. And it was say- unbelievable. And they saved you some good round matzahs from Pesach? <laughs> we bought, we bought, oh, I got so many round matzahs. Everyone <laughs> wanted me to eat their matzah. All the leftover matzah they send over and we had a, uh, an Israeli television crew who joined us, which they never in their life heard of Pesach Sheni. Right. Who heard of Pesach Sheni? So it was really a beautiful Kiddush Hashem. That must have been wow. wi- that must have been wild when you realized you missed Pesach. That must have been like, like you say to your family, "What was Pesach like?" I mean, it must have been crazy thinking like that. I was so depressed that I missed Pesach. I couldn't believe it. Wow. I was a month and under you know in the in, in yeah. a coma. So I I actually asked my wife how was Pesach, and she was. She, in the morning of Pesach, the morning before Pesach, the morning of Pesach, air of Pesach, she went with my daughter, Abigail, and they went to give out because they, they had a lot of people in Israel, all the people that were in isolation. They, they couldn't go shopping or anything. Right. So there, a lot of them were, so my wife went and she took with an ambulance of a fella. Oh, I think we 60. saw this video. I think we saw this video of her doing that, right? She's unbelievable. She yeah. went down for 60 big boxes of food right. to elderly people homes and she delivered all this food and she came back home after the Pesach came in and uh, then she started cooking so she was so exhausted my son my 17 my 16 year old son he was so the uh so disappointed because he always loved doing negotiations about uh Afikoman with me aye, aye, aye. <laughs> and he the poor girl the poor wife of mine she was so tired so she said you know whatever you want you take you know he says, uh, and he, he wants the negotiations. He's Israeli. That's what he wanted. And um, finally, um, uh, the second Pesach we did, we had to do the whole thing all over again, and we started <laughs> like an hour of negotiations. So he was very happy. He had a month to think about what he, what he wanted. Ellie Beer with us, um, founder of United Atzal. So is, just to get back to my point, I'm sorry for harping on it. Is Ellie Beer 100% fine today, Baruch Hashem? Uh, not only 100% fine. I'm helping people who need help uh, emotionally and physically. I'm back to saving lives in that cellar. And I'm actually just this morning, 4 o'clock in the morning, landed in Newark Airport. You're here. I'm in New York. Yeah. I would have told you to stop um, by here. 
I would. I would have. Are you still in Newark? That's where the, the no. We're in Lower Manhattan. We're in Lower Manhattan. It would have been perfect for you. For sure. For sure. So here I am in New York City. I'll be here for ten days. Nice. And then um, I, I, assume, I feel terrific. I, I assume, really do. I assume your first trip since the big homecoming, right? I would assume. My second. Oh, it's already your second. Wow. Uh, all right, Elliot. Only have a minute or two left. What was it like? I mean, look, uh, we understand because of your status and because so many people love you, we understand why the Florida community reacted the way they did when you were released from the hospital and you were on your way to the airport. And obviously we know why there were thousands of Atsala members and others to greet you in Ben Gurion when you got there. But just give me, give me, you know, give me a minute on how amazing that whole experience was. The Jewish community of Florida and especially Miami are incredible incredible people and when i got sick they were helping me and sending me so much stuff to the hospital i couldn't even eat the food they were sending me i was like i lost my taste i couldn't even they were sending me soup i told the doctors and nurses just give it to the doctors and nurses they should all eat it up and they were so amazing and when i got out of the hospital i had a good friend um uh um um and he came from from uh simcha Shane, and he came from uh, New Jersey to be the paramedic flying with me back to Israel together with Debbie North. So we got out of the hospital with the ambulance, and hundreds of cars were there from the Jewish community. And when I saw them, they were passing by, and they opened the back door, and they were just screaming from the cars, they love me, and it is, and that. I thought it was my funeral. I actually <laughs> thought I died. I'm not kidding. I actually started pinching myself, and I said, maybe I did die. And this is the whole out of body uh, thing because it, it's like a Leviathan they were doing it for me. And on top of and that, it, and on top of that, they're flying you to Israel. <laughs> exactly. I'm getting a private flight to Israel from the Sheldon, Sheldon and Miriam Edelson. I'm saying maybe, maybe something did happen to me and I'm not alive. And, uh, and then when I landed in Israel, a thousand hotel volunteers, I said, Oh boy, this is really, this is it. And that reunion is, and the reunion with your family must have been like surreal. It must've been so, like like half of you is hugging them and the other half is like not even believing you're with them, right? I'll tell you, that was the highlight of my my coming back to see my family, to see my kids, my twelve year old, my sixteen year old, my nineteen, my twenty two, my twenty four and my wife Kitty, and then my son in law, of course, and hugging them and, and I never I I never thought I'll see them again. I really said goodbye to them. And then I'm I'm kissing and hugging them. And it was amazing. It was the most amazing feeling and i'll tell you what happened two months after that i was hugging my first grandson right mazaltov by the way mazaltov you're, and i was you're waiting grand, for that grand... i was waiting when i went to the hospital i said shucks i'm not going to see my grandson your grandson I, I was, was like, just born like what the 14th or 15th of july right 10 days ago 10 days ago yeah mazaltov yeah uh 11 days ago exactly right. yeah and he had a he had a great name my father's name and my father was think of real yakov wow and um, and he's having a picture event too, so I'll be back for that. Amazing. So Baruch Hashem, I'm, I'm, I, I had the worst year of my life, and now and I had the best year of my life. Amazing, which is amazing. Together, God gives you life, and God gives you the ultimate life, which is the continuation of our tradition by having a grandson, which is just amazing. Um, uh, do you, by the way, yes or no question? Do you have your sense of smell, uh, your sense of taste now? Unfortunately, it came back big time. <laughs> 
<laughs> Unfortunately, huh? Unfortunately, I like how you say that. For someone who tries to stay in shape, one wonders if it's better not to have this sense of taste. Huh? <laughs> Uh, by the way, is this uh, is this still going on the uh, the August sixteenth um, uh, race to virtual five k race to save lives? Is it still going on? Yes, thank you for saying that. That's amazing, for you. ladies. Oh, you know, both of us like eating good food, right? So yes. <laughs> once a year, once a year, we have to do a race to save lives. A virtual five k race to save lives when seconds count. The race is August the sixteenth. Save lives five k dot com. It's, of course, United Hatzalah, and they are encouraging everybody to sign up. It's hashtag race to save lives. The website is save lives 5K. It's a number five, save lives 5K.com. It's scheduled for August 16th. And I assume this is a, uh, as, as you indicated, it's a virtual 5K. It's going to be a little different than the regular 5Ks that we're used to. Right. If you remember um, a bunch of young guys, Yami Shechter, your friend, and others uh, came up with this idea. Uh, it was Alex Goldberg, all these guys who came to Israel for Shana in Israel and Yeshiva. How can we help Atzala? And they started a race, right. 5K race, and they were raising money. Any kilometer they do, a mile they do, people would donate for it. Right. And uh, we raised in one year like a few hundred thousand dollars. And then it was incredible. And then we continued it in America. We raised $1 million for Atzala to buy equipment, med- medical supplies, and oxygen. So this year, what do we do? And everyone, you know, you can't get together and run. It's not, not so easy. So everyone could run in their home. They could run around the park. They could run alone. They can walk. They could even sheep and say they ran, and they can walk slower. <laughs> and they could go on an ambicycle and say they ran. Uh, but the most important thing is get groups together. Right. Groups. And uh, I, I have one group that I was so blown away from, this, uh, the Lax family from Toronto. Um, Marsha and Michael Lax, and they lost two children last year. And they're such incredible people, and they got together a bunch of guys running in their in the memory of the two ch- children, yeah. Ethan and Jonathan. And, uh, and they got, like, a lot of people supporting this race. The United Hatzalah Virtual 5K Race to Save Lives is officially August the 16th. Details. SaveLives5K.com. SaveLives5K.com. Ellie, or they could go on our website, uh, IsraelRescue.org, and they could see if uh, people sh- can remember easily IsraelRescue.org. They could find it there. IsraelRescue.org for information. Ellie, um, honestly, you and I did not know if we would ever speak again. Baruch Hashem, thank God we are speaking, and thank God you are 100% healthy. And I know I uh, echo the sentiment of a lot of people around the world who are glad that you're back at the helm of United Hatzalah and that you are, a uh, again, a uh, healthy member of the beer family. Kol uh And uh, the year should only continue to get better and better. Amen, amen. And I hope soon everyone will be able to travel to Eretz Yisrael and oh, come yes. for Sukkot. And no one knows if we could or, yeah, or not, but I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope that this terrible disease will disappear fast. Maybe I'll time it well, and I'll be next to you on the plane again. Alibi. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks, Ellie, and stay well. Ellie Beer, United Hatzalah of Israel. What a story, huh? What a story. A July Monday here at JM in the AM. Happy birthday going out to Yaakov Auerbach. Yaakov Auerbach is celebrating a birthday today. Happy birthday, Yaakov, from all of us here at JM in the AM. Before we get to Rav Doron Peretz, let's wrap up our by Wine's lecture about 
Jews in the United States here at JM in the AM. Uh, the American State Department uh, did everything possible to prevent Jewish immigration into the country. Refugee ships were turned away. Famous case of the St. Louis. Many of them ended up in Auschwitz. Nobody uh, came out with a good record. And we know the uh, Allied bombers did not bomb the railroad leading to Auschwitz, even though all the other railroads were destroyed. And uh, the Jewish community felt itself powerless. I think that that's the only word I could use. I remember it. I remember the war. I remember uh, the few uh, who escaped and came. Jews were afraid to talk to them because they were afraid to hear what they were going to say. So nobody talked about it. I know it sounds weird, but uh, it isn't that we didn't know about the Holocaust, but no one spoke about it, with the exception of a few like Peter Bergson and his group, the Orthodox rabbis in America, the Eastern European Orthodox rabbis, made a protest in 1943, uh, and they uh, marched to the Capitol in Washington. No congressman received them. They just massed on the steps, but they got some publicity. And the picture was in the paper. But they were roundly denounced by the establishment Jews who said, we have to win the war. The Jews are a diversion. The Jews somehow will sap uh, war materials, energy, money. First, we're going to win the war. After we win the war, then we'll be able to take care of everything. This attitude began to change when the war ended. First of all, Roosevelt died. There's no doubt in my mind that if Roosevelt would have lived, the state of Israel would never have come into being. But... uh, Harry Truman became the President of the United States. Very unlikely person. The Lord has his messengers. They're never the people that we think. And uh, the uh, death camps were uncovered and the survivors were seen. And the full horror became apparent. At that time, the struggle against Britain in Palestine was going on from 46 to 48. Bitter, bitter struggle. Atrocities, everything, and you you name it. So then, uh, American Jewry with the exception of uh, 
good part of reform. Reform was split. Stephen Wise was a Zionist, but Elmer Berger was against the whole project. The reform movement was split, but the conservative and the orthodox and half the reform sought to do penance for what happened during the Holocaust in two ways. One was to try and bring over as many survivors as possible into the United States. Uh, in the war itself, the, uh, the uh, Jewish Welfare Board and the Vada Atzola were able to bring over about 100,000 Jews that were in a camp in northern New York and in southern Canada. And then, uh, by pressure, uh, the Immigration Service issued like 50,000 special entry visas uh, so that some of the displaced persons could come to the United States. But uh, Truman uh, said that England should let them into Palestine. Ernest Bevan famously said, Truman wants them in Palestine because he doesn't want them in Brooklyn. There's a kernel of truth to that. But the uh, struggle of the Jews in Palestine against the British and then later against the Arabs, that became the goal of American Jewry. Later on, uh, freeing Soviet Jewry became the goal of American. All of this was because of the fact that during the Holocaust we were powerless and impotent. After the Second World War, the Orthodox community realized that without a Jewish education it is doomed. And it created what came to be known as the day school movement, which was, you know, would be a Jewish school that would teach Jewish studies and secular studies as well. The Jews would no longer go to the public school. They would be in a protected environment. They would be able to grow up as Jews. And they would have the benefit of a good education that would enable them to be integrated into American academia and into American society. The success of the day school movement is again one of the great miracles of our time. Uh, when my parents uh, took me out of public school to put me in the junior high school that then was being formed, good and fine Jews came to my mother and said, you can't do this to him, you'll make him a cripple. I remember I overheard it. I said to my mother, why will, they, why will I be a cripple? She said, just ignore them. But uh, how many were we? A handful. But that handful built the Jewish community in the United States today. It was wildly successful. And then when uh, the Eastern European refugees came, amongst them great rabbis and Russia yeshiva, 
they said, we're not going to make the mistake that our predecessors made and say that in America it can't be done and we give up. We're going to rebuild Torah in America. And uh, that has also been wildly successful. Uh, Far beyond the dreams of anyone. So American Jewry stands at a crossroads now. It has no cause to support. Israel is, they say, is good enough without us. The Soviet Jews are already out. So it has no cause. Most of American Jewry has no tradition. And therefore, uh, without a cause and without a tradition, doesn't have much of a future. But uh, stranger things have happened in the Jewish world. And uh, I am uh, mildly optimistic about American Jewry. I'm very optimistic about Israel. And I think that all of these things will come to play, if not in our time, in the time of our descendants, that we'll really see a strong and vital Jewry uh, throughout the world. This JM in the AM, it's Rabbi Beryl Wine. His lectures, of course, this is the one on the United States from the uh, from the series entitled Jewish Societies in Retrospect. Rabbi Beryl Wine's lectures at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. And also, you can uh, r- I remind you that our friends at Artscroll uh, are giving a 15% discount and free shipping on any title brought by wine in honor of him being the centerpiece of our um, the centerpiece of our nine days programming. Uh, go to uh, artscroll.com, 15% off and free shipping, anything over by wine. If you use promo code radio, again, if you use promo code Radio. Uh, Rav Daron Peretz is standing by. I, we're going to focus on the emergency campaign because that's what's really important for today and for tomorrow. So we're going to focus on the emergency campaign. I just want to mention uh, that as we get ready for uh, this entire week of the nine days and Tisha B'Av, keep in mind if you go to Mizrahi.org slash three weeks, Mizrahi.org slash three weeks, you write out the number three, Mizrahi.org slash three weeks. Uh, the entire Tisha B'Av program, which is fabulous, is described there including keynote on location, including the Harabayat Biadenu debate, including an online Megillat Echa reading from three very prominent chief rabbis. Uh, all of this uh, is available at Mizrahi.org slash three weeks, T-H-R-E-E. Um, and I'm just calling your attention to it. We'll talk more about it as we get closer to Tisha B'Av uh, here at JM in the AM. Rav Daron Peretz is chief executive of the Mizrahi World Movement. And is with us live via telephone, Rav Taron. Shalom, shalom. Welcome back to JM in the AM. Morning, Nachum. Wonderful to be back with you. Thank I, you for the opportunity. I appreciate that. And again, and again just a word, because we are going to focus on the campaign. Uh, three weeks programming, amazing. Vayichan this week, amazing. Nine days programming, amazing. And what you have scheduled for Tisha B'Av itself is really remarkable. And I hope our audience goes to the website and takes advantage uh, on what can be a really inspiring day if they follow your programming. 
Thank you, thank you. And no, I really thank God the team's worked very hard here. Yeah, and I think just a word just about the Tishaba programming sure. that uh, some really unusual things. The fact that there's the uh, this Kinoton location, which you know, which in 15 different places in Israel and all around the world, places which the Kinoton refer to the burning of the Talmud in outside the Notre Dame and things in the Brandenburg Gate in Germany and. Uh, in Warsaw Ghetto and the Clifford Tower in England, where one of the English Kinota written, and Rome, of course, the Arch of Titus, referring to Titus, and 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 of course places all around Israel, Yerushalayim, Megiddo, Hebron, Kevarachel. So to have leading educators and tour guides in Israel and around the world speaking about the Kinot in the in the place that they happen to refer to something really, really special, and we really, really, you know, and that the, the idea for this programming came from feedback that we would liaise with communities all around the world, and they said this is what they would like because many of them are doing their own keynote programs in their communities, but something from Eretz Israel or places around the world which the keynote refer to gives a different angle. We're doing that, then of course we've got the Harabite debate between Rabbi Yehudaglik and Rabbi Moshtergan, which I have the privilege to moderate, going up or not going up, big questions today, and so much more. And as you said, the chief rabbis and the wonderful things and uh, we hope it will be in such a difficult time of Tisha B'Av an opportunity to just bring it closer to home a deeper appreciation of the Khurban and once these things are sort of one can identify with them more deeply and touch something deep within us please rather should inspire the rebuilding Bezrat Hashem the um, open pray Amen again call like a vote for the programming Rav Daron Peretz with us from Israel the emergency campaign is for yeshivot and seminaries. As you know, World Mizrahi, under of Daron Peretz's leadership, has uh, itself and in partnership with many other movements uh, in our community, I am proud to say, uh, has done everything in their power to fight for, and I believe, I think Rav Daron would agree, at this point has successfully arranged for our young men and women to be able to get to Israel from Chutz Laaretz to Israel uh, for the beginning of Chodesh Elul. That's the way it looks right now, and we are hoping that that only continues to look positive as uh, we go forward. But there's an emergency campaign going on for yeshivot and seminaries. Um, you know how important the uh, the institutions, the yeshivot and seminaries, seminaries are in Israel. Now, because of unprecedented financial challenges because of COVID-19, it's endangering the gap year experience where students gain a love of Torah, a passion for Israel, and a sense of responsibility for the Jewish future. The goal is that no student should be denied this transformative opportunity. Mizrahi, therefore, is leading the effort to bridge the financial gap, partnering with more than 40 Torah institutions, establishing a new department to serve and advocate for yeshivot and seminaries. And now, right now, right now, today and tomorrow, we're in the middle of 48 hours of giving. Today and tomorrow, 48 hours of giving to support this campaign and to support all the yeshivot and seminaries that are on the list safeguard the next generation of Jewish leaders by supporting them at C-Match. It's a cause match campaign. So it's cmatch.me slash Mizrahi. cmatch.me slash Mizrahi. And based on what I saw this morning, the campaign, thank God, is off to a good start. Baruch Hashem. Rav Daron, from your perspective, why is there an emergency campaign for yeshivot and seminaries? Okay, so this is just, as you said, absolutely critical. I think so much evidence and experience shows that the gap year to Israel is one of the most transformative years of an individual's life. What it does to have long-term uh, learning, the Avat Torah, Jewish identity, Torah learning and living, the connection to Eretz Israel, the state of Israel, the, the sense of responsibility and leadership in Israel for those who stay in communities, campuses, camps, schools, and all, and uh, beyond in communities around the world, 
is, is incredible. And therefore, we see this as the leadership incubator of the Jewish people, where thousands of young men and women come every single year and get inspired about the things that are most important to us. And hence, this year uh, is absolutely critical. And it's exactly this, of course, which is under threat at the moment. We all know what uh, Corona and COVID has done in terms of the financial responsibility challenges. Over and above that, the Jewish Agency and its Massa department, which, which heavily funds many of the uh, scholarships for needs-based students in, uh, you know, in communities around the world, including the United States, up to $3,000 per child or who, where there's needs-based, has also been significantly cut because of the major cuts taking place in their budget. So number one, what we did, we uh, rallied around, we managed to create a coalition of over 50 institutions representing them to the Jewish Agency and Masan. Thankfully, we're able to reverse many of the intended cuts, but there are still significant cuts, understandably, with the COVID-19 reality and cuts in their budget. So we decided, you know what, out of lemon, what did the Dale Carnegie say? Out of lemon, let's make lemonade. What did Chazal say? Out of the mashbeer, let's be it, it should be mashbeer. Out of the mashbeer, where there's a crisis, there has to be a mashbeer, something which can provide incredible opportunity. And thank God, incredible things have happened, Nochum. Over 50 institutions together have all come together. And as a lobby group, which has, which has solicited and elicited these uh, achievements with the Jewish Agency, but more than that, we all decided let's get together under a Mizrahi umbrella campaign done with CauseMatch, who've done an amazing job. And together, let's try not only raise the 25% of money that's been cut, you know, which will amount to around half a million dollars that we need to raise, not just that. Let us raise money for every institution in need that's so desperate now for two things. A to ensure that any deserving child, any scholarship request, not one of them is turned down. Every single child should come specifically now, should be able to come. And secondly, for the yeshivot and seminaries to raise the money that they need to, to be able to provide all the different uh, quarantine requirements and to provide the educators and mechanchim with what they need, that this year should be the most incredible year. And thankfully, Baruch Hashem, as I said, you mentioned 40, it's actually now around 50. Wow. And it's been amazing. To, uh, to date, I just looked before I came online, one, just over $1.5 million has been raised. Amazing. We're hoping it's going to be more than double that. And uh, the institutions which are working the hardest are raising the most money, like everything in life. And our job <laughs> at Mizrahi, like our, jo our job at Mizrahi, is to drive an umbrella campaign of a sense of emergency around the world, because when you bring everybody together, always the whole is greater than the sum total of individual parts. And the idea is to create this broad campaign to drive it globally that all, each institution can plug into and get as much as it can from its graduates and uh, families and supporters. But we can as, as, create as much of a buzz as possible to make sure that at the end of the day, the totality, you know, if I had to say, I'll say it like in one line, or if I had to say it like this, one of the critical success factors of the Mizrahi movement as a global religious Zionist movement has to be how successful are the, is the gap year in Israel? How many kids are coming? How transformative is the experience? How strong are the institutions? Because that is the engine of the future generation of the values we believe in, Avat Torah, Nerish Israel, and responsibility for Klal Israel. And the success of that is our success, and therefore we've sort of stepped up to the plate yeah. and doing everything we can to, you know, to make this as, as, as successful as possible. And, as I, as and I would hope that those yeshivot and seminaries that you're helping with this campaign will all uh, be glad to welcome you and other key, and other key speakers on the subject of, uh, of Zionism and Israel being the future of the Jewish people into their institutions to be able to transmit the message that you just gave uh, to its students. And by the way, everybody, I'm not going to read every name. Uh, I'm not going to go through the whole list. That would be impossible. 
but almost, if not every, almost every yeshiva and seminary that this audience has sent children to and that may have, and members of this audience may have attended themselves are on this list. Everybody's doing their part in this emergency campaign. A lot of familiar names of yeshivot and seminaries, a lot of them that we really care a lot about. So everybody out there, dig deep, go to the website, check the list out, see the description of what this campaign's all about. C-match, letter C, cmatch.me slash Mizrahi, C-match for cause match, cmatch.me slash Mizrahi. Rav Daron Peretz is with us. Uh, so Rav Daron, in addition to the campaign, you announced that now there will be a, an official office, a department that will advocate for yeshivot and seminaries. Tell me about that. Hey, I'll tell you about that. That's actually uh, a thing which has come directly out of the crisis. We've seen that uh, the Shivot Midrashot, when they had their seminaries, when they had their budgets cut at uh, the Jewish agency, there was no body to galvanize them and represent them to these national institutions. You know, we, of course, had the ORC campaign in, in recent months, and one of the things we spoke about is one of our critical success factors was strengthening the gap here in Israel. And here was the ideal opportunity for Mizrahi, in the place that it has influence in the national institutions all of the years it's had, is to leverage its influence in these places to make a difference to these uh, significant budget cuts. So what came out of this was the opportunity for Mizrahi to play a historic role, and that is to advocate for these institutions, which has been very successful over the last few weeks, just in terms of restoring a lot of the funding. And on an ongoing basis now, also that Massa uh, is dealing with so many different institutions, they absolutely welcome a, a body which is bringing them together and advocating for them. So literally what's happened over here Massa and the Jewish Agency absolutely welcome this. It's made their lives so much easier. They, they'd rather made, they'd rather hear from one voice than a million voices. Exactly, exactly. And, it's, and, and, and each day goes by, I'm seeing it more and more. Right. It suits them perfectly because it, it, it enables them to operate in a more efficient and expedite things better. And it's perfect for the institutions, which have got people now to represent them and advocate for them and to uh, you know coordinate. So it's working well. And we're seeing unbelievable opportunity. I can tell you, just I'll give you one small example. Sure. Well, you know, one small example. It, it's already been a full-time job just to dealing with Masai and the collection of this money and collecting it and, and having to transfer a significant part of it as matching funding to Masai. But over and above all of that, which even that is just uh, you know, a huge amount, I'll give you an, an example. A number of yeshivot and seminaries have approached us over the years and said many of the American, North American kids, when it comes to Pesach, are, um, some of them go back, many of them stay. Right. Now they've got many, many weeks in Israel, and, and they much don't have har- programs and for them. Much harder than, we- much harder than the Sukkot break, much harder than much the Much harder, break. yeah, families around. And they say, could World Mizrahi do something? Now, of course we could do something, you know. Great but idea. for that you need funding. So Great that's just idea. one idea of what the should be. Great idea. Great idea. I know it as a former student, and I know it as a parent. I would not have, by coincidence, been in Israel during Chodesh Nisan when my when my when three of my children were studying in Israel. They would have not been able to to ha- they would have been literally r- roaming the country board. Uh, I'm telling you, what a great opportunity idea for leadership training for all types of different things. What a great it's idea! Amazing. So that's just one of many ideas that we want to create a department. Which at the end of the day, means personnel yep. to serve serve the Shivot Midrashot, advocate for them, Great serve idea. them, and hopefully add as much value as we can in all areas. That's, great. that's what we're raising money for. Great idea. Great, great idea. World Mizrahi Emergency Campaign, Yeshivot and Seminaries. Everybody, you know what we think of the work of Daron Peretz and his amazing organization. Try to be another one of these amazing number of donors. It's incredible how well this campaign has started. Try to be one of those donors who's going to help out. It's today and tomorrow. It's a cause match campaign. Cmatch.me 
slash Mizrahi. cmatch.me slash Mizrahi. Rav Daron, Tadarabah, good luck with the campaign. Uh, we're going to do everything in our power to encourage people to give. Thank you. Maybe my parting, parting shot, Nachum, is all of us, ourselves, our children, our grandchildren, all of us have been touched in the most deep and profound ways by these institutions. Yep. Let's support them, and let's make sure that no child anywhere in North America and around the world who wants to come is denied the opportunity to have a transformative view. Give with an open heart, and really, I think it affects the future of Jewish destiny and Jewish leadership. Thank you for the opportunity. Excellent. Thank you, Rav Nachum. And some... Some call and thank you for joining us. He's amazing, Rav Daron Peretz, just amazing. Achino Israel and Achim our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSegal.com and the NachumSegal Network, and of course, on the beloved NSN app. Wraps up a, what is today? Monday here at JM and the AM. And don't forget, visit artscroll.com for 15% off on all of Rabbi Wine's titles with promo code radio. Visit our friends at A&H uh, by going to kosherdogs.net, 10% off with promo code radio, kosherdogs.net. And thank you all so much for joining us. Tomorrow, we're back starting at 6 a.m. Make sure to join us. Have a fabulous Monday. Mayor Weingarten returns a week from now. A week from today, 9 a.m., the Israel Show returns. Have a fabulous Monday till tomorrow. Nachum Segal reminding you, remember to pass, live the present, and trust the future.